0: Welcome to the Holy Smokes Podcast, a show about faith, friendship, fine tobacco, and drink. I'm Steve Ryder, and I am with Sebastian Wynn in his garage lounge that is almost done being built. We'll talk about it once it's done, feature it on the podcast. Sebastian, what's the name of this lounge? The Leadership Lab, but we just call it The Lab. The Lab. There you go. Here in falcon colorado where i live i didn't have to drive very far usually <laughs> i go to the lions den which is a half hour one-way drive hour round trip and so it was just like five minutes boom i'm here yep now when i first met you you had moved to colorado springs actually falcon but moved to the area a couple months prior a few months prior uh, about a month Okay. We, got, we
1: came out here to get my uh, daughter started off in school.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you lived one block from my house. You, you and uh, Brian, your friend, were yep. renting a house just one block away. And so you had actually ordered some stuff at the Holy Smoke store, some Holy Smoke swag, a hat that you're wearing right now. Yep. I walked it over. <laughs>
1: yeah. It was the weirdest thing. I get a text saying, hey, where do you live? And I didn't know your number. I'm like... Who the hell wants to know where I live? You know, what is weird. <laughs> you know, then he said, you're going to drop off the swag. I was like, what kind of customer service is this?
0: <laughs> so
1: how did you get into Holy Smokes? That's very interesting. We got a friend here who just joined us, Russ, and he's also from Dallas. But a month before I moved out here for you, which is right before August, a week before I moved out here, I had a friend who contacted me from California who I knew 10 years prior, do a consultant gig. He was going out. I was coming in. We just made friends. And he said, what are you doing in Dallas? He goes, hey, let's catch up. So me and him caught up. After not seeing each other 10 years, at the end of our dinner or lunch, he said, hey, tonight I'm going to meet some guys. It's called Holy Smokes. If you want to come and have some cigars with us. Really? You know, because here's what he said. He goes, yeah, these are Christian guys, and we go have cigars together. And I was like, ah, shit, probably guys hiding, smoking and thinking it's taboo and it's going to be, you know, awkward and all this. I was like, but you know what? Let's just go and, you know, let's connect and all that. Because we were having a good conversation. And so I showed up and met these amazing people. And I was like, well, that's mud in my face. I was full of shit. (laughs) Just judging people (laughs) before I even met them. Just because I had bad Christian experience and all that stuff. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah, Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, when when our group rules rule number one is no assholes that kind of helps to weed out a lot of those judgment a lot of those exactly yeah yeah ultra religious uppity
1: yes yes
0: guys yes
1: that's what i was afraid of and i didn't meet that at all i just met a whole bunch of amazing sincere guys and they just had this thing called promise keeper and so a couple of those guys who were doing it came out and I was like, that thing's still around. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, they're resurrecting it. <laughs> it was really just an amazing conversation. And they said, hey, you want to join our conclave next month or something like that? I go, what are you talking about? They said in Colorado Springs, we have this thing called Conclave. I go, say that again because <laughs> they didn't know in a week I'm moving to Colorado Springs. Yeah. And it was just, for me, it was divine. And I mean, you I met mean,
0: so many people. Oh at my the, stars. The, I mean we we had probably I'd say 200 Easily. people at least Easily. that came into town or were local. And I thought you guys
1: are crazy. Who would fly here and just have cigars? What's wrong with you guys? I was like, what? Who would just
0: fly out to have cigars? Last year we had a couple of guys come in internationally. What the Christmas? I, I don't I don't think there was anyone that came in internationally this year, but last year, during COVID. Wow. During COVID. Wow. And and I don't know if they were just desperate to get out or they were already had another trip planned to the U.S. I'll
1: tell you why I would see people flying here because once I had finally experienced it myself, which I ran into an old friend here from California, which was crazy. Really? Yeah, it was crazy. But anyways, I think the reason is because you can't find caliber people like this who, like you said, rule number one, no assholes Two:
0: no selling. I don't know what the other rules are. Those two are just the best. But, um, what happens at Holy Smoke stays at Holy Smoke. Oh, Smokes. is that what it is, number three? Yep, I num- never num- knew it. Number three is what happens at Holy Smoke stays at Holy Smoke. So no pictures posted outside of the group unless there's express permission from everyone in that picture. I love because, that. Because we have so many people that are in denominations that are anti-tobacco love and anti-drinking. And so we want to protect them. I and love then, that. And then number four is real easy. Just leave room for the Holy Spirit to work. There's four rules. Four rules. Mother that's daughter. Right. I
1: never got past first two. <laughs> I think I'm still on probation. <laughs> um, so that's one, two, three. Is what happens here stays here. I love that. And number four is leave room Holy Spirit. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, those are I love the four it. rules. I love it. So I think now that I've experienced a conclave, I think people come because the caliber of people come, share the life stories. I made a really good friend here, Burke, and I have become very close. Um, Burke's since, a great guy. Yeah. Um, Well, that's just subjective, but anyways, (laughs) (laughs) well, I I met him there at Conclave and just a lot of other great people. And the point is the caliber of people who come to Holy Smokes is very unique. And -hmm. I can see why people travel across the world for it. Yeah, definitely.
0: Yeah. So you weren't born in the U.S. Mm -mm.
1: I was born in uh, Vietnam, Saigon. Well, Dalat, which is a little bit north, is considered the wine country, cold area mm-hmm. of Vietnam.
0: Yeah. And you were born during the war? A Vietnam War? Yep. I was born in 70. Yep. And your dad?
1: My stepdad uh, was an American soldier, brought me and my older sister uh, from Vietnam to America with my mom during, what was it, 74, 75?
0: Yeah. Around that time. So yeah. you were four or five years yep. old? Yep. And when you went to school, you didn't speak English?
1: Uh, I went to school. I spoke broken English by then because my mom refused to speak to us in Vietnamese so we could learn English and uh, adapt and accolade. Did your mom know English? No, she knew no English. That's why she refused to speak to us in Vietnamese. It was really hard at first because obviously we can't speak to her because she won't speak to us in Vietnamese. That's all we knew how to speak at the time. And so it was just it was a big learning curve. I just remember there was a lot of miscommunication at first because she was learning English too. You know what I mean? And so she was really, my mom's very um, strong-willed.
0: <laughs>
1: and so she, when she said she wanted to speak with me, she just totally cut us off. Yeah. So that way we, we could learn English right away.
0: Yeah. And you guys settled in Kansas?
1: Hayes, Kansas,
0: of all places.
1: If anybody knows Kansas, it's Hayes, Kansas. And usually they're Caucasian or white. And um, I grew up, my uh, stepdad's family is German. German Catholic and at that time it was predominantly just German Catholic community.
0: How big of a culture shock was that for you?
1: Well, it wasn't because really? I don't really remember Vietnam, really. Yeah. Did some therapy and stuff like that. And they said at that age, during traumatic times, kids usually can compartmentalize. Hmm. And that's why I did compartmentalize my I guess I did, because now, after doing a lot of therapy and work and stuff like that, I can remember bits and pieces. And then I went back to Vietnam to meet my dad who I didn't know I had a dad. My mom said he was dead and an asshole. And so I finally met him and it was weird. It's like being an adopted child or foster child, I don't know which one, only finding me your birth parents. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of anger and resentment. I went back about five, seven times before I got that healing. The first two, three times I was angry, wanted to kill him, angry, just like, why would you leave me? Why would you let me go to America? Why was I good enough to be no, you know, kept in Vietnam and he kept my oldest brother and oldest sister there. You mm-hmm. know, why did they split the kids? They split the kids because my mom was in a range marriage. She didn't love him in the first place. He's very simple, man. He's very everyday guy. And my mom was very ambitious entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. And so they never got on the same page. Like she wanted a man that was aggressive, entrepreneurial, you no, know, gonna be a billionaire type of guy. And um, he was just content with every day. I mean, he taught me just being grateful for being in the moment and what you have. I mean, my mom and my dad polar opposites. It was, so I got both ends. But I got taught by my dad by going back to Vietnam and spending a couple weeks with him at a time and learning about him. And, uh, Do you still speak Vietnamese? I learned Vietnamese off the streets, actually, in Arlington, Texas. Really? Yeah, on the streets. I was, what, 13, 14? Because my brother, I don't know, I was young. I could do everything by grades. I was around 7th, 8th grade. Yeah. Ninth grade the latest, 7th, 8th grade In that time. Vietnamese community just came to Grand Prairie and Arlington area. And these guys are homeless boys. Their parents put them on the boat, refugee boat, get them here to get out of the war. And they landed here with nobody. So we're community. All of us boys, no father, no raising nothing. And we raised ourselves. I learned everything on the street. I just wanted to know who I was, where I came from. And I picked up the language. I remember
0: during my years that I worked for Dr. Dobson, he had an illustration of, in elephant communities. Oh, yeah. When the males, the adult males, were, not were killed and mm-hmm. not present, the juveniles grew up to be very aggressive and very antisocial. And they didn't violent. understand that violent. Exactly. Mm. And Doc used that as an analogy for young boys, exactly. human boys, yep, that grow up in communities without fathers, and yep. thus it just it feeds this anger and yep. violence, and I assume you saw that when... I
1: saw it. I was it. Where do you think they got the statistics from? <laughs> I'm not kidding. In 1990, I was top 10 most women in Dallas County.
0: We'll get back to that.
1: <laughs> That's, I'm just we'll giving to you that. the point. When there's no male... Elephant there No father No leadership We we don't know If we became men yet And what do we have to do Drink, smoke Kill, destroy And that's what we're told Society,
0: everything That's what men do Right So Going back to Hayes, Kansas mm-hmm. You're Vietnamese mm-hmm. In a Predominantly Caucasian town
1: Yeah It's all Caucasian German Catholic predominantly uh, There's the only ones who were not there was no Mexicans there. I mean, none. Really? Zero. No, listen. To this day, there's very few. I can tell you funny stories, but that's how you're 100% right. It was only us three that were not Caucasian for the first five, ten years of my life growing up.
0: What was there, that like?
1: I didn't know any difference. I thought I was Caucasian. No, I'm not lying to you, Steve. Yeah. I didn't know the difference. Because when you grow up and the kids you play with, your neighbors, your cousins, everybody, you know. So I never thought it was any different until they told me.
0: And how did they tell you?
1: So I was going to St. Joseph, this one, St. Joseph uh, Catholic School. And I think I was probably fourth grade, maybe at that time, third grade, fourth grade. And the kids are like normal, go outside, recess and play. And they said, hey, Sebastian, we got a game for you. We got a game we just made up just for you. Oh, let's do it. Right. And all of a sudden they made this horseshoe in front of me. So everybody's making this horseshoe around me. And I'm like, well, who's on my team? I turn around and nobody's behind me. It's just me. And they started calling me names I've never heard in my life. Right? Remember, right in the middle of Vietnam War. So how old are you when you're in... I'm trying to think. My daughter right now is 10. She's in fifth. So eight years old. Seven years old. And I've never heard these words before. They called me chink, gook. And they pulled their eyes back and started running backwards. I'm like, what's going on? You know? And... I didn't understand what was going on, but I looked and they're moving backwards, but no one's on my side. Oh, I tag, I gotta go get them. But there was something they said just pierced the crap out of my heart when they were saying, because they're isolating me, they're saying these things, and and I just wanted to fit in and connect, but that hurt so bad that day. And what I realized later on was that they were picking parts of me that were not like them, pulling it apart, making fun of my eyes and my nose and my skin color, and I was like, what? I didn't understand it. And that day, I still remember making this commitment that I never wanted to hear them ever say again, you're not like us. Not like me, not individual, but collective. You're not like us. Mm-hmm. And that's when I realized I am not white. You know, that's why I looked in the mirror a little bit longer and looked at my eyes, looked in the mirror longer, looked at my nose, looked in the mirror, looked a little bit longer at everything about me.
0: Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. What was your parents' reaction? Did you tell them? You know, I don't remember. I, I don't remember
1: the engagement. I don't remember a conversation. I remember, you know, just that, that was a pivotal moment in my life, then like my parents got divorced afterwards. Like, I, I don't know what happened. Somehow I went with my mom to Texas, and the first time in my life, see, I thought the kids, the story I made up to protect my little heart at that time was they were just jealous at a better tan than they did seriously I made up that story in my head
0: for me I always wanted more melanin in my skin <laughs> and so I'm jealous of, of, of your skin tone you, know,
1: you should see my kids they're naturally dark when they when we live in California the last 25 years when the sun's out man they get tans like crazy it's crazy but so when my parents divorced I don't remember having any conversation with them we're in Dallas Texas first time I was like holy shit I saw this guy have a better tan than me I was like oh my gosh I was like but you know what because i learned how to be discriminate. because they did that to me and i'm being discriminant to myself but there's something wrong with his eyes
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know because he didn't look like me mm-hmm. it was a mexican first time i ever saw a mexican i was like oh my god you know but there's something pulled me closer to him like because he was close to me he's dark you know i was like oh, all right i've never seen a mexican in my life but then like make a long story short i saw this other guy with the ultimate tan i was like Intimidated, I go, oh, shit, this guy got a real tan. And he was a black guy. But no, he's too tall, too big, too strong. And I started picking him part. And I don't—I didn't know at that time, but now I know I was learning how to be racist and discriminate, You know? Because that's what happened to me. And I was, quote, unquote, surviving. So mm-hmm. I didn't want to hear anybody say, "No, you're not like us. And the reason I did it because I wanted to study them so I could be like them.
0: Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So your mom takes you to Texas Mm -hmm. what's going on in your life
1: that time I don't know I was too young I I do remember we landed in a house fourth grade because I remember I liked this girl at fourth grade who was twice as tall as me (laughs) I got to see her in fifth grade and that time we're in all Mexican communities low income area in Grand Prairie Texas how was that 78 by then 1980 yet 78 79 and um I just remember doing whatever it took to fit in. So my friends' dads and uncle live in the area. They'd get drugs across the border. And they're Mexican. Would watch them cut it up, and they'd say, "Hey, take this down, so-so street, whatever." Now listen, I could tell you this story until I had to stop and reflect and think about it. This is my daughter's age. She's ten right now, in fifth grade. But we'd just take this. We thought it was fun. No, it's normal. We'd take these bags. Sometimes, you know, just little. Like handbag size, sometimes it's a little duffel bag, and we just drop them off to certain people's houses. Just two eight, ten-year-olds walking down the street, dropping off
0: drugs. (laughs) Did you you know what they were? Did you know? I had no idea. I mean... Were you getting
1: paid? Yeah, they'd give us, like, candy money or something like that. You know, it was no big deal. But I do remember one time, now I'm in fifth grade, we're sitting there watching them cut it up, because, you know, they usually cut it up, give it to us, and do whatever. And... I have no idea where this came from. And I just looked at him and I said, hey, uncle, you know, I was watching you and I've been watching you and if you do this other one more step, I think you can get more. And he looked at me and he said, Sebastian, we've done this for generation. He goes, you think you're a fifth grader? You think you could do better? And I just went, yeah. I mean, I literally did because it was out of innocence. It was out of competition. It was was just, I saw something. I have this natural seeing processes. And hence what I do now is a, Business coach I see process and stuff, and um he's all right here I didn't know what was going on at that time. he gave me a quarter bag at that time, and he said, "You go sell this in a week, you come back and you have enough money, I'll sell you more and I was like, Ooh, game on, I didn't really understand what was going on. I didn't know what he was doing I didn't know I just felt like it was a rite of passage it was a blessing it was is an opportunity right so then me and my friend, which is his dad, the uncle quote unquote, uh, son. We went and got our first scale. We had to ask our friends, and we cut it up. We went and sold it at our school elementary. And man, we came back in like five days, not even seven days. And I said, I want more. And I gave it to him, And I got addicted to being a businessman. <laughs> hey, wait, I got to tell you what businessman I was before that. Before that, in fourth grade, we'd go to Kmart. And with still pins. The big pin just came out with the four different colors. Mm-hmm. Holy smokes. It's going to revolutionize all school I mean, in my mind, right? And we'd steal those pins and I'd sell them at school. And I mean, you just see the profit, you know, and all that. I was going nuts. And then he gives me drugs I didn't know at the time, selling them, making tons of money. And then everything went south or north, however you want to describe it after that. You know, for a season, it felt like it was going north. Everything's going great right? How so? Well, I felt like a man. I felt like I got blessing from these guys. What I find out later in my journey is those men were like every other man in my life. Previous to that, including FBI, Chinese mafia, Mexican mafia. I'm a tissue box and they'll use me until the box is empty. Then they discard you. And so during that time though, I kind of knew it, but it felt so good. Be needed, wanted, and approved
0: and appreciated.
1: I do whatever it takes, just to get here. Uncle say, "Hey, good job. Here's more. Hey, good job.
0: You know." What was the next step in your business journey? So let's fast forward now. Business journey. Yeah.
1: Now I'm in eighth grade. I remember this so vivid. Seventh, eighth grade. I bought my first car cash, and I was 15. My mom took me to car dealership. We bought it. I learned how to drive it. It was a stick shift. I drove it to driver's ed, and she's so pissed I was driving driver's ed. I go, how else am I going to get here? My mom's working, right? And and she's
0: she was like, working like two or three jobs, yeah, right? Yeah, she
1: was working three jobs a day at that time. And I drove myself driver's ed, you know, just go get through the process. And at that time, I was driving to about three junior highs, two high schools, where, where I was dropping stuff off, collecting money from them. And I was making a ton load of money at that age and that time. You know, this is probably 80, what, 85, 86?
0: How much were you making, do you
1: remember? Oh, easily, well, depending on the drop-off school. The most, the school made me most money. I still remember it's in Duncanville. And it was a private Catholic school, I think it was. And those kids had so much money. Their parents just threw money at them. And I was probably making three to 500, depending on that school. So each school would go from one to 300 on average. And so each week I'd make about 500 to $1,000 a week. In 85. In 85. 85. Because i would never give my big brother and sister, in the Asian culture, is a huge thing. I give a 100 bucks a weekend to go party. And I'd party to be partying with them. But for your youngest brother to give your older brother and sister money to go out, dude, that's gangster. I mean, that's gangster. And there's other perks I got that made me feel more like a man, which was, now I look back, I was like, man, I should have died several times. But, you no, know, just, we were taught a man who could drink a lot smoke a lot, have a lot of sex, and win fights, was a real man. And so I was doing all that by eighth grade. While I was making straight A's. School was so boring. Really? Oh, school was so boring. I'd finish all the work in classroom, homework and all that junk. And actually I enjoyed it, it was a challenge, but it was boring, you know? Cause it's all rote memory. It wasn't like really make you think. It wasn't learning. It wasn't learning, it didn't make you think. I had to figure out how to distribute this stuff, not get caught, oh and by the way, I started a second business. With still cars, because, you know, you get in this world, you get to meet a lot of people you're drilling drugs to. And it wasn't because I needed the money. I wanted the approval and I wanted the challenge. So one of the uncles who were selling drugs to all that said, hey, dude, I could get you $300 a pop for every truck you bring me. Chevy truck. Back then, you need one screwdriver. Open up the window because it didn't lock. You pull back open the window. You unlock it. Take a screwdriver, break the column, pull the lever. You got a Chevy truck. 300 bucks." And what they do is take the engine, take it out, restart for other trucks and stuff like that. They burn the rest and chop it up. And the coolest part—not cool like back then it was cool because it was just the most emotional rush your body go through. Driving through Duncanville, I had to pass a police station. Get to the chop shop, <laughs> man. And you, we could have gone different routes, but that's when I wanted to feel alive. I drive right by a police station with the stolen truck, just to see I could do it. That was, what, 8th, ninth grade. is that crazy? That was stupid. And I didn't need to. That's the whole thing. I didn't need to do that. I wanted to do that.
0: So what was high school like?
1: I don't know. I wasn't there Continue. very much. <laughs> I was serious. I wasn't there very much. But I'll tell you a couple of stories that frame me my high school. So, obviously, Asian. But there was no Asians in Grandparent Arlington at that time. I was all with the Mexican Mafia. And then um, we get to freshman year, my brother immigrates to America with like 14 uncles and aunts all at once. My mom's been paying money, your older working in the government, my older biological brother, which I didn't know I had by the way. My mother out of nowhere one day goes, hey, come see I need to talk to you. Um, your brother's coming to America. Me and my sister are looking I'm like, what the fuck, our brother? Yeah. We don't have a brother, what are you talking about? Well, I didn't want to tell you to have an older brother in case he died before he made it to America. You know, they have to go to refugee camp. They have to sneak out of Vietnam. All kinds of crazy stuff. And, um, anyways, she said he's coming to America. He comes to America, and I look and go, "That's not my brother." Dude is dark as heck, wearing high waters. Back then we call it high waters pants up there. Now we, they just call it cool to wear pants like that. We were poor. We had high waters. Now they intentionally pay hundred dollars for pants that can't go down to your ankle. And so, anyways, long story short, my body just went off like. I want to know where I came from. I want to know who I am. And I'm watching them use pencils to eat. Like, what the fuck? Why why don't they use forks? I didn't even know what chopsticks were at that time. I'm not kidding you, man. I was like, what is going on right here? They're speaking this weird language. They're dark as hell because being on the beach, refugee camp. His hair is like a fro. I'm not that. That's not me. I'm with the Mexicans. They're cool. So long story short, my business mind went off. And the Vietnamese people love at least this group of guys because they... Homeless, no no father, no family. They we call them sticky fingers. So Vietnamese people go to your house, they touch something, it's gone. They have sticky fingers. Yeah. They love stealing, yeah. <laughs> break in houses, stealing stuff like that. The Mexicans I was with had all the drugs. Vietnamese like drugs, but the Mexicans like the cars that go boom. Vietnamese would either steal the car, everything in the car, anything you want, and go in houses, steal guns. And back in the day, and give them to my Mexican friends. So I said, hey, I will get the Vietnamese to steal whatever we want. And I'll give them the drugs from the Mexicans And I'll give the Mexicans whatever they want from the Vietnamese And if anybody fucks with the Vietnamese I'll ask the Mexicans to go kick their ass If anybody fucks with the Mexicans, I'll get the Vietnamese to it And holy shit, by the time I was 10th grade I was like the king I kid you not I still remember someone messed with the Mexicans So we found out who it was Everybody went to school We stole his car, took it out of the parking lot Came back out We're all sitting in our car where he parked his all the Vietnamese sitting there Waiting to see if he could find his car They knew exactly what they did They just had no proof Guess where we took it to? The chop shop <laughs> After that went on People was like Holy crap Don't mess with the Mexicans Or the Vietnamese Because they knew Now we we're collaborating mm. I didn't even know What collaboration was until then <laughs> Until now actually I'll spell it now <laughs> But that that was how So 10th grade I dropped out I had the highest In school suspension rate I was still making straight A's, bored as hell, but I was feeling this power. I was feeling this significance, but it was very short-lived. Every weekend had to go next level, next level.
0: You didn't have anyone coming alongside you within the school system saying, hey, Sebastian. One lady. Really?
1: One time, my art teacher, uh, Miss Sharon Murphy. That's the only teacher person I ever remember their name. She said, hey, you are a very special kid. There's going to be two things going to happen to you. You're going to have to decide. She said, you're going to be a CEO of a company, which I had no idea what the hell she was talking about. And she said, or you're going to be a boss of a crime organization and be in prison. And I go, okay. (laughs) I had no idea what she was talking about. But that's all she told me. I still remember that. Hmm. She saw something in me and she said that. That's all I remember. Hmm. But no one else. Nobody.
0: Really? Nobody else. You're getting straight A's. Yeah, you straight A's. Oh,
1: you, you, and you I, I got think- a lot of spankings. You go to principal's office back then. They had paddle. Holy shit, that hurt. I still remember this day, man. He one of his paddle had drilled holes in it. Oh crap! You put your hand on his desk, pop. Even though that hurt, I remember first time he hit me. I said ice. <laughs> I just first thing my mom was like, I need some ice. I yelled ice, ice. You know, but as soon as I left the office, I had to put on this tough guy image and all that. But it hurt like hell. But then I realized I got a lot of
0: attention. What was the kind of stuff that you would get in trouble with in school?
1: Oh, I lied a lot. Like I did a project and I just, I said that I did it or something, I don't know. I just remember one time they say, we know you didn't do this, whatever, whatever. And so they sent me to the office. And so I got some swacks for that and later.
0: Would you pay someone fights. to do your
1: homework? You know, I just did it really fast and I was just, didn't have any sources. Because it was just all BS, you know what I mean? I didn't document sources and all that. And so, like, they think someone did for me. Like No one did anything for me. This is how easy school was. You know, why do you need to source something that's so stupid and redundant, in, in my opinion, at that time?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, you drop out. Mm-hmm. What's going on in your life? Does your mom know what's going on?
1: Uh, she's working three jobs a day. She doesn't really know what's going on. We fake signatures, like, you know, when you have to, if you miss school and stuff. The reason I dropped out in 10th grade, was because at that time in Texas, if you're 17, you're considered a legal adult, and I got put in prison. I got put in jail. We were taking some guys down. Gosh, dog, I forgot what it's called. It's in uh, downtown Dallas. It's not deep, Elm. It's like where all the tourist shoes to go. It's right by the Union Tower and all that. It's just like an entertainment plaza area. I don't even know what you call it here in Colorado. But I forgot what it's called there. And we were just enamored by it. It's cool. They it had street dancers, vendors. You have bars on the side, restaurants. It's a whole, like, you know, you are parking, just walk around. It's a nice little area. I forgot what it's called, but we we came out one time and there's like four guys just came to Vietnam. We're showing them like, this is fucking America, dude. This is awesome, right? And we saw this guy's guy. So we thought maybe it's performers, street performers. So we go over there and kind of push our way through. There's a whole bunch of guys fighting with each other, like about to fight each other. And then they turned and looked at us goes, what are you fucking chinks looking at? Oh man, wrong thing to say. I mean, just making this loose face in front of all these people and stuff. I just got a knife gifted to me from the Mexican mafia. They called it a switchblade because we didn't, <laughs> c- couldn't get a lot of them in America at the time. And so for me to have one, it was like really prestigious, mm-hmm. I guess the word. Well, I had a knife, I should use it, right? Put a couple of guys in the hospital, I was out for three months while one guy was in ICU. If he died, it would have been a murder charge. Wow. And so no one knew where I was for three months. Just my brother and a couple of the guys in the mafia. So my mom didn't even know. What? No. What was the story? Uh, He went off with some guys and he's doing dumb shit or something. Isn't that crazy? And you only spent three months. Well, two things happen when you're in prison. Okay. I know our legal system pretty well now and it really sucks. You have money and you have contacts. You're good.
0: And you had money. I
1: had contacts. And so they got me out. That's when I became, uh, no, I got out first time, paid a lot of money, did a lot of parole, all that good stuff, and like got put in again and like for got what? out. Violence. Every time I was violent, I was in the pulling complex, angry. I had to prove myself, am I a man? I've never heard a man say, hey, you're good. You're more than enough. You're uniquely, wonderfully created. Nothing. I heard shit from any other man except for more. Let's go. Let's make more money. Come on, more and more. And so the level of my intensity, what I did, kept on rising. So I'd be more significant. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And so third time, but this time wasn't mine. Just because I speak English and Vietnamese, and I was on borderline with the Mexicans and Vietnamese, the cops always came to me, and shake me down when something happened. Even though I didn't know what's going on, they just know who I hung out with the stuff, and they're trying to get me for a murder charge at this park. And I didn't do that one. I wasn't going to tell who did that one. And I posted bail before court hearing. And I said, screw that. This can be my third strike. I'm not going to do this. And so I went to New York where I had some guys um, would come down, buy guns from us. In Texas, back in the 80s and early 90s, guns are like candy. I mean, you get them anywhere and everywhere. I'd have guys who's working at a Kmart, Walmart and stuff like that. Was it Walmart? No, it's was something else at that time. But anyways, I'd call them. They'd put a gun... They unlock it from the locker, put it in the trash, take it to the back dumpster, and I'd drive up, pick it up, give them a hundred bucks, and drive off. And I'd sell it for almost a thousand to people in New York. So I called them because they've been coming down to business, say, hey, I'm in big trouble. I'm gonna go down for a long time. I'm gonna, you know, just flee. Will you guys take care of me? And they said, Yeah, heck yeah. So we went up there, I bought like fifteen guns as a gift to them mm-hmm. <laughs> and I took ten guys with me, and we went to New York and I never saw after 10th grade. Didn't know what school looked like or anything after that. Yeah, that
0: was my life. And who was it that you called while you were there? mean who was it? Who, who was it that brought you in? Some of those guys
1: who come down buy guns for me and stuff like that, one of my uncles.
0: But they were working for part of?
1: Oh yeah, the Chinese mafia. Original three triads that came to America called home one, which means red door. So back, I don't know how many years ago, but original three triads that came from Hong Kong into New York, and they're the one I was playing guns to. And so there's a hell yeah, come on, you do that there, man. We got a lot of stuff you do up here. And I said my contact, Texas, who would sell us guns and bring guns up for us and stuff like that.
0: Yep. So, what were you doing with the Chinese mafia?
1: So I'm gonna make long story short because there's a lot I was doing. So first they lock us up for several months, take all our IDs. Though it's the biggest box of ramen noodles, stack it up to the ceiling, 10,000 cartons of eggs, and we don't see them for three months. Cause you gotta make sure the FBI's not watching, we're not clean, blah, blah, blah. They're making us new IDs and all that stuff. Now that we're out, you know, they want to test us. We have to go up the ranks to test. So I went all the way up the ranks to be a bodyguard. I knew that's what I wanted to do because one, that's power and position. Two, you didn't take all the risks. I was my boss's bodyguard. So you have the godfather, three uncles, each uncle got two bosses, right? Mm -hmm. So I wanted to be a bodyguard for one of my uncles. He's next in line to the godfather. And that was my ambition, and I I made it, and I became a bodyguard to this guy called the uncle. He was my uncle, and we um, had a street. Each mafia has their own street where they laundered money through, and then they made me responsible for that street. Meaning... I had to go every month, make sure each person is paying protection money, 10% of their books. And we got to launder our drug money through their books. So listen to this. They have to pay 10% protection money. So if they're only making quote unquote 100,000 that month, but I'm laundering 200,000 through their thing, that paid me protection money off of 300,000. Not the 100,000 they really made. Mm -hmm. That's how bad and evil we were. We were robbing people blind. I mean, these are everyday hardworking entrepreneurs, business people, and we were just screwing them. And I was covering a street and they would take one of the stores, we transform it into our quote unquote ladies house, whorehouse, house. And um, I was responsible for that. Anything happened on that street, anything that would draw attention, please, or somebody got hurt, it was my life at stake. Talking wow. about learning how to micromanage. Wow. I yeah. mean, No sleep micromanage i remember i never literally slept i mean i didn't feel like ever slept i could hear pins drop from a mile away it was intense it was horrible life it was horrible and everything's just great because i watch the movies and stuff but when you don't know someone's gonna stab you in the back metaphorically and literally shoot you someone rapes one of your whores you have to go kill them i mean just it's crazy it's a crazy world someone ods off your drugs you gotta hide that and clean it up it it's stupid. it was wow. not you no know, people watch movies they don't really understand that's a movie they leave a lot of stuff out <laughs> so that was me till I was twenty one yeah between fifteen twenty one
0: now you didn't just stop at being a bodyguard for the uncle Mm-mm.
1: like everybody else. I get very ambitious because it wasn't even for the money. we had too much money at that time you got remember. New York in heydays, I came right at the heyday. we right at the tail end of it. I mean, we'd go buy a new car, thirty, forty thousand back then, cash, everything's cash, anything what back then I don't know if you guys remember the suitcase phone came out. I mean you carried it in a suitcase, right? Yeah. And like the brick phone came out, dude. That was like a dollar twenty-five a minute or so. It was ridiculous, right? We didn't give crap. I mean we had money come out of our butt. But I wanted to be a boss, not because of needing money, just, again, for that status and acceptance. That's it. I needed to hear a man say, hey, you know, I'm proud of you, son. You're doing good. That's something simple like that. But I never felt I arrived. I never felt, is this enough? Did I do right? Did I do enough? You know, have I arrived? Am I enough? So it's just that constant climbing, you know, climbing and climbing. But to climb in that world, you have to step on people. And it was, you look back now, and you're like, holy shit. You know, it was, it was horrible. Yeah. I look back now, I, I did not know. You yes, asked my wife, we married 26 years now. She married me after I got out of prison and a year or two after I became a Christian. And she's like, we're sleeping and I'd be jerking, like my whole body jerking stuff because I'm having PSTD. I didn't realize where I'd punch her. And I just, and she had to wake me up cold sweats and stuff. I didn't know what was going on. But it was all those people that I was climbing over. Hmm. I wouldn't remember anybody's name. I just see the face just reliving it emotionally no i've seen some bad things literally where we're sitting right here this close where you're at Steve turns to the guy next to you blows his head off right in front of me
0: oh my god
1: 18 years oldish wow. 17 18 seeing that how do you get that out of your brain yeah and the guy's looking at me he's dead his head's back like that his brain's all against that wall and you're like and then he then he turns the gun to me why <clears throat> they were robbing us we had a store because uh, everything's cash mm-hmm. I came in middle of a robbery I walked in on our robbery This other group robbing our place How'd you get out of that? Well, when he turned the gun on me And here's the thing They're robbing a Chinese store Which now I spoke broken Chinese and Vietnamese They're Vietnamese Speaking Vietnamese No one in that room There's like eight of us in this room All on our knees and stuff They the gather all the employees mm-hmm. And um, no one except for me understood He says now we have to kill everyone I was like, mother effer. Mm -hmm. And as soon as he shot that guy and he was about to shoot me, the guy standing in front of him holding his gun on my head already he said, now we have to shoot them all. And he points a gun to me. This guy runs in, opens the door, let's go, the cops are here or something like that. I mean, that split second, I I thought I was dead. The guy next to me, which was the owner's son, who's like freaking 250 pound muscular, I mean, like he works out. it was already shot in the neck, he's laying there bleeding out from his neck. Cause mm-hmm. they had to do that right away, put everybody in check. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I walk in late, looking at this guy, has got a bullet in that neck holding his neck, blood's all gushing out. They're asking the owner where the cash is, and tell him, pop, his head against the wall. All this happened so fast. He says, Now we have to kill them all. So they don't know what we look they know what we look like, right?
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> then all of his friend runs in, opens the door, let's go through here, and all that, and they just left. And I just stood for like, I don't know, felt like years going, what the fuck just happened? Like, well, you know, how come
0: I'm not dead and all this? It was intense, bro. And that wasn't a wake up call to you to be like... Wake up to do what though? Wake up to do what? That is the world I lived in.
1: What's the next thing? You just got to go kill them to take revenge so your name has reputation. Other people won't do that. There was no other option. When I... Got out of prison, I went back at my GED, good enough degree, AA, <laughs> BA, MBA. I found out, did you know seniors, get a senior trip and travel together? Mm-hmm. Oh, motherfucker, someone told me that. I would've stayed in high school. <laughs> you hang out with your friends and you go travel the world? I was like, my world was only where my foot take me, about 10 miles where my car took me. When you live that low income lifestyle, yeah. that's as far as you go. Because mm. outside of that, you have no reputation. Outside of that you go into wealthier areas that you know you stick out, you know the cops will pull you over, all kinds of crap like that. You know what I mean? So I didn't know there was another option, Steve. I literally didn't know. All I knew at that time, those motherfuckers gonna die. Hmm. That's it. Next thing you think of is revenge and escalate everything higher and higher and higher. Everything just escalates. So <laughs> is that crazy? I'll tell you no. when I'll tell you when I didn't know though. Yeah. So Right after that action actually happened That actually accelerated my status position Because I didn't die So now the gods are for me or something, right? Yeah And so now I'm a mafia boss Walking down the street Two full-time bodyguards Whatever girl I woke up with that morning Just going to the regular dim sum restaurant We go to eat, hang out, talk bullshit Recover from a hangover the night before And this white guy like Freaking probably 50 yards away You know, down the street He's in a suit. And I'm like, this is just something weird. Something off my whole radar body saying, why is this guy on my street and all that? And he didn't stop and talk to one person until he just walked through the crowd up to me. And I was like, oh shit. My bodyguard seemed all that. They put their arm out, keep him away from me. He hands me this pamphlet and he says, hey, Jesus loves you and I love you. Oh man, my whole body went nuts. <clears throat> I said, fuck you, white man. No, not verbally. Everything happened in my heart and my head. I couldn't say anything. But I was like, fuck you white man How dare you tell me you love me You don't even know me You've called me a chink, a gook You may feel my eyes, my skin You know, always I'm projecting But I was like, how can this fucking white man My stepdad never told me shit like that And I just wanted him to shut up Stop it, shut up And if Jesus was real I grew up Catholic If Jesus was real, how come he's never told me this stuff He's just a story, right?
0: Mm Mm-hmm
1: christmas stories and stuff like that and all this happened made me matter seconds i just remember grabbing that pamphlet crumbling up threw it back at him and it bounced off his face and he goes one more time he goes jesus loves you and i love you i go motherfucker you're gonna die now i was like bitch not do you only say it once you say it twice to me i wanted to tell my bodyguards to shoot him i couldn't open my mouth i had a gun right here i went to reach down grab my gun and shoot him i couldn't do it sounds like stopping me and all I could do is nod my head like this and my bodyguard pushes him out of the way. I walk forward, the guy's walking off, but something tells me to turn around like, danger, danger, turn around. So I turn around like that guy was trying to hurt me, right? And he turns, the the same time, he looks right at me, Steve, and scared the shit out of me. It's like from a distance, he looked straight at me and he can see through all the mask I was wearing. And it's just this little boy scared, just wondering to know who his dad was, was he enough? It felt like he could read that on me. and I my whole body just shook with shiver, like fear. Like he could see that through me. It's like he had x-ray vision or something. So I did what I do best, I reached in my pocket, I grabbed another mask, I put it on like I'm not scared, turned around walked off. Like, you're not gonna hurt me. And man, after that, my whole life went downhill. How so? That guy fucked me up, man. All I heard back in my head was, Jesus loves you, I love you. And I'm like, what the fuck is this word love? How can somebody who doesn't even know me tell me that? And he's fucking white. And he can't gain anything from me. Every woman that needed something from me, I knew what she was there for. What she needed from me. My money. All the guys, whether drugs, power position, more guns, whatever. I At least I knew that love. I knew those loves had strings attached. I knew those loves were conditional. I was fine with it because I could play the game. Right? Mm-hmm. All transactional. But the love that guy was talking about was so fucked up. I was like, I couldn't sleep. I literally couldn't sleep. All I kept in here, this back of my head Jesus loves you, I love you. This like whisper, right? Yeah. And it was driving me nuts. So I took more drugs than I ever took. I drank more I ever drank. I fought more I ever fought. And I started going downhill because I started drawing attention, right? I started drawing attention at the police. So long story short. Which wasn't good for
0: your. Never. Your, we never draw for, attention. For the uncles and no, for the godfather. We never draw
1: attention. We were literally, when you say organized crime, it's a business. So in Texas, when we got kind of to fight somebody, shoot people and all that, no problem. It's like status, reputation. In New York, you can't shoot somebody or kill anybody without permission or self-defense. But that was how business-oriented it was. I mean, I learned business. Hmm. I mean, it was amazing. It was amazing. A lot more my MBA ever taught me. I guarantee you that. <laughs> because I learned how to deal with people. I learned how to hear what their intended Need was what was really their underlying intent and all stuff like that. So long story short, I'm getting too much tension, going downhill, and then finally the FBI come in, uh, raided us. I don't. It was it was a tag joint thing because the FBI and ATF at the same time, they raided the house that we were in, and that's why I was facing six six years to life.
0: For what?
1: Oh man, they've been surveilling us for over three months. Really? So what they were trying to do is get our Godfather who I learned a long time later, killed an FBI agent under a bridge in New York. He killed an FBI agent, so they've been after him and the whole, our whole silo, and I just happened to show up on the scene, I didn't know all this, and if they get me, and they get me for six years of life, they want me to roll over on him, because I had access to him, because I was close enough to the uncles, and then him, two steps away, and they're trying to squeeze me to do that. And so they've been watching us for over three months. Oh, man, everything. They knew everything we did. Every person we collect money from. Everything. I mean, they knew everything. There was nothing they didn't know, man. It was kind of scary. It's like, you know, growing up Catholic, you know, they said one day you're going to be at the gates of heaven and they're going to reveal everything. I was like, oh, shit, that was the day. I mean, it was on VHS tapes back then. They had it all on video. Yeah. We couldn't deny anything. It was crazy. It was intense.
0: And you weren't willing to roll over.
1: Nope. Because that's how we play. So here's what happens. I learned this again in hindsight. When they took our IDs and stuff, because they follow us back to Dallas. So they know where our family and all is. Now they have leverage on me. If I ever rolled over, I'm not worried. They're going to kill me slowly and publicly. They're going to kill my family first. So I know that I was cause of their death. Then they kill me publicly and slowly. I was like, my family didn't deserve that. Basically, my sister and my mom Mm -hmm. at that time. They didn't do anything. So there's no way... I'm going to do anything for this godfather guy. You know, I'm not going to roll over on him. So, you know, he's going to get what he gets, but I'm not going to do that for my mom my sister. I still had some humanity left in me. That, very little, but that's the only <laughs> humanity I think I had left in me at that time.
0: But yeah. you also knew that your life expectancy in prison probably wasn't going to be that long. No,
1: I know for sure, it'd probably a week, two max. When we get in those situations... We pay, you have to pay. You play, you have to pay. We get in those situations, FBI is gonna try to get you really turn over real quick, sign some papers, all that stuff. Or you don't, you wait and you die. Now, this is not for everybody. I was a higher rank, remember? I was a, a boss. So at that level, I know where the books are. I know who's on our payroll, the percentages that we take from each store. I mean, there's so much evidence. They went to the stores and got all the, that's how I got six, six years, because each one was like 13 year account of extortion or
0: mm.
1: racketeering they call it, racketeering, right? Yeah. Extortion. Yeah. Each store is a 13 year account, maximum 13 years. And so they had like 10, 20 people ready to testify against me going collect money from them. Then our thing is quickly get them to say, they're not gonna go because we blackmail them with killing their family, you know? But I think six or eight of them went through with it. I'm facing six years to life, and if I don't turn over, so the, if we have so much leverage on me. They're saying, hey, it's you or him, you choose. He's a piece of shit, why would you not roll over on him, right? You have rest of your life, you're a your little kid, blah, 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 blah. But I had different morality growing up, um, in a sense that we just don't turn each other, that's family. As fucked up as this family is, this is my family. I chose these people, yeah. right? So I was just gonna die. So I waited in my jail cell, waiting for some guy to come in and kill
0: me. And you didn't want to get shanked.
1: No, I didn't. (laughs) That's the most embarrassing way to die in prison. It's very humiliating. There's There's no honor to it. Getting shanked is being so disrespected. I know this sounds really weird. I'm saying it now, I'm thinking, damn, death is death, but for the lifestyle we live, that is fucked up if you get shanked. I mean, that's like your whole life was for nothing. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's more honorable to die in a fight. And they, you know, cut your throat. They tear off your head. Anything but shanked. Mm. Because shank, what happens is they find sharp objects, stab you multiple times, and then break it in you to die. Mm -hmm. Leaving you in to die. Because when they pull out, you're going to die hemorrhaging, right? And so that's just like the most lowest way to die. It's not honorable. Mm. You know what I mean? and so I was just waiting there I was going to have the biggest fight in my life with somebody and um, I was there and, and the FBI just told me that morning saying hey listen they just hired somebody that is a life for meaning that they're mm-hmm. going to be in prison the rest of their life and he's in the system array, and you probably have 48 hours maximum to live so you better sign the papers now." so I don't know if it's a scare technique I just know it's real because I know a lot of guys gone in and never came back out yeah. you know what I mean in our lifestyle so I said nope not going to do it and this guy comes up in my jail cell that night. I was like, "Oh shit, this is it!" I felt it before the guy even came up. I literally felt it. So, I'll give you an example. There's this guy named Russ who's sitting right next to you. Don't know him from hill beans. I just been seeing him on our Facebook group with the holy smokes. And he start cooking and he start doing all this. Like, there's this transition going on in him. And I was like, "How need you go, this guy?" Because I feel like I'm in the same life stage. Like, there's this passion coming out of me, and so I was getting contact this week. I told my wife, right. I said, you know, my kids just came out of town. This, woke up, this motherfucker text me. He goes, you want to grab a stick? I go, what the, Christmas? You know, it's like that, Steven, you feel it, right? I felt like tonight I'm gonna die. I know it, I just knew it in my body. You no, know, I've lived such a violent lifestyle. So I'm sitting in my jail cell, never left it, never went to mass pop, and I'm just watching mass population eat nothing, I just sit there. I'm waiting, waiting, waiting. I felt this shadow come, I was like, oh, fuck, this guy's huge. The biggest black man i've ever seen i'm not even exaggerating i've been this that's my fourth fifth time in prison that was the biggest black man i ever seen man he was so big he couldn't even walk through the deal he had turned sideways walk in i mean that's
0: how big he was but he gets in and was he your roommate or just no, coming in i've
1: never seen this guy before yeah and he goes hey i'm down cell block so-and-so my name's so-and-so and he reaches in his back i'm like Motherfucker, just introduced me before he kills me. I was like, what kind of fucking guy is it? My head's going crazy. I mean, everything, my body's going nuts. I get in fighting position. Man, I've been, I was golden glove boxing when I was in Dallas, Texas, tri-state, second place tri-state. I was in gold gloves. I'm trained martial arts. I'm trained in biting. I know it all. I was gonna take whatever it takes to kill this guy, right? And he reaches back, oh, the guy was so big. All oh, he had just grab my neck and snap me. That would have been honorable. But he's gonna shank me now? That's so disrespectful. And I'm now getting angry. He reaches back there and I'm getting five percent and I'm like scanning his body. I don't know where to hit him. There is nowhere <laughs> to hit this guy. He was my stepdad, you say, brick shit house. I mean, he was huge. Like, there was no pain point on him. And so i was just gonna hit him right in the middle of the throat, try to break his Adam's apple, right? And he reaches, pulls out this book, and my whole body just freezes. He puts on my lead hand, he goes, here we go. And I go, I all I heard after that was like, Snoopy, I didn't hear anything, right? But basically, he's like, I'm down, so, back, so, so, whatever. He walks off. He gives me the book, The Cross and the Switchblade. I go, what the fuck is this? I go, wow, it sounds so familiar. Now, let me back up. The reason that book, Cross Switchblade, sounds familiar, that white guy on the street that threw a pamphlet at me. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you what happened that day, rest of that day. So we go to the dim sum, we eat, we drink. We sit there two, three hours. It's our normal thing we do. We go back, I'll take a nap, and we go back, and where we go to is front, the storefront is a video store. It sells video, back then you rent cassette tapes and stuff like that. In the back, we have illegal gambling, which was my casino. Then I live downstairs under there. So we go back there, get buzzed into the casino, get buzzed into the back room. Back room, hobnobby, thanks for coming, blah, blah, blah. While one of my bodyguards stands at the door, entrance to downstairs, the other bodyguard goes downstairs sweeps it, makes sure no one's down there waiting to kill me. He comes back up, both of them stand at the door, give me the nod, it's clear. I go down there, they both wait for me upstairs. I'm supposed to get changed, get ready to go to the next club or take a nap, whatever I do. And I take my gun out, put it on the nightstand, and I saw that pamphlet there. The same when I come up through with that guy. I go, what the fuck? Man, I'm like shitting in my pants, I'm kidding. I grab my gun, I sweep the floor thinking that white guys down here, like how the hell did this white guy get down here, right? No one was down there. I put the gun down. My heart's coming out of my chest. I opened up this cartoon panther.
0: It's called the cross and switch. Button. Was it the same crumbled up one?
1: That's exactly. It was crumbled up. I'm like, what the fuck? would this come from?
0: So I scanned through it. Is there a chance that your bodyguard picked it up? And you and, know what long time ago,
1: because I went to Bible college in Dallas called a uh, Bible college it's a Southern Baptist Bible college. I'm sharing the story with them and they wanted to write a book. And then they said, well, we can't explain that. So we're not going to write it. What the fuck? You can't explain. Tell me how Jesus walked through a wall. Motherfucker. There's so much in the Bible. We can't explain. Yeah. But because they couldn't explain that. They didn't want you. I was like, isn't God's glory, his mercy, his grace more than enough? Yeah, we could defaulted to that, but I'm not going to lie and say that's what happened. I'm not going to lie and say something else happened. I don't know how that damn thing got on my nightstand, and I crapped in my pants while I saw it. And I think I needed that, because if I could explain it, then there, I don't need a God. Yeah. Personally, my journey, if I could explain how it got there, I wouldn't need a God. i would be the super, science is the only thing, there's no miracles, no Jesus, no God, right? Yeah. That's when I think when you asked me earlier, you know, did that wake me? That scared the crap. I still remember to say it woke me up. It woke me How up. How so? Well, I'll tell you because I can remember visually right now, vividly. A couple of days after that, maybe a week or two after that, and I'm getting really sloppy. I'm, I just look in the mirror and hate myself. I say, I hate you. I hate you. I hate you, who you are, who you're becoming. I hate you. And I punch the mirror. I'd punch it, just crack it, blood everywhere. You know, I'm usually high most of the time at that time. And I said, if there's a God, and I started saying that, if there really is God, if there's anybody bigger than me, I need some help. But I'd only said that in my privacy of looking mirror, anger. And I just, I realized now I was just crying out for something greater. I finally got like, I'm not God. But you have to really understand, mm-hmm. I have passion, compassion for people in that lifestyle, because you come from a different world, and you said, well, didn't that wake up? Isn't there another option? You didn't think that was a wake-up call? Seeing a guy's head just get blown out, literally a feet or two in front of me? You know, literally in this range.
0: Yeah.
1: No, because we didn't know anything else. Hmm. We didn't even know there was another possibility to consider. And at that time, I was so broken that I wanted to consider another possibility. Listen, and this is going to be very, very descriptive, but this is how I became my own God. At any time, Steve, this is America. This is the world. At any time, when an 18-year-old kid could call in any beautiful, gorgeous prostitute, which he owned most of them, unless they're European or Russian, we had to go hire them. That's how powerful I was. Anytime I literally could tell a guy go kill another guy, they're dead. Anytime I want a kilo coke, drugs, and right, anything my beck and call at that moment, I could have. Why would I need another God? I am God until you realize you're not. And that's the downward spiral I was in. That's when I finally came out. If there is a God. Because listen, if there was a God, why don't I fucking have a dad? If there's a God, why is my mom working three jobs a day? If there's a God, why do I have to go embarrassingly, I mean, I didn't think about this now, embarrassingly in front of all the other kids, use food stamps or use a lunch ticket punch because you're poor and everybody knew you were poor. Mm -hmm. Everybody knew you didn't have a dad. If there was a God, Miss Sharon Murphy, who said that you can be a great CEO, you're a great leader or charge of organized crime. I don't even know what the fuck she was saying at the time. Handing me the art award Of the student of the year in art Mm. And everybody came up on stage With their parents And I was there by myself And when she called my name I walked out of the room Because my mom was working I didn't have a dad So if there was a fucking God Where was he? Mm. That was our conversations You know Where the fuck were you Mm. When someone beat the shit out of me Because I had this Napoleon complex I woke up I couldn't see for three days My face was so swollen I wouldn't go to the hospital
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, there's those conversations in our life. Was if there's a God, right? But I was such at a bottom pit and I hated myself. I was downward spiraling this fucking echo in my head Jesus loves you and I love you. Was fucking me up, man. That thing was fucking me up. And I just finally looked in the mirror and said, If there's a God and you're real, I think I need some help. I wouldn't even admit it. I just said, I think I need some help. Because mm-hmm. shit wasn't working out the way. I planned all the way up now to my life at that time. Everything I wanted, I planned, I made happen. I literally made happen. I, quote, unquote, willed it. Hmm. You know what I mean? But there was something going on. I couldn't will anything. I couldn't control anything. And so fast forward, and I'm in prison. That guy gives me that book, and I'm flipping through it, and I still remember this one part, this guy, Nikki Cruz.
0: But the pamphlet was crossing the switchblade. That's when you heard the book. Yeah, the fucking
1: thing. I still see the picture. I see... David Wilkerson told Nikki Cruz, Jesus loves to love you. And, and Nikki Cruz goes, fuck you, you say it one more time, I'll cut you a thousand pieces. Because back then they had a switchblade, cross switchblade. And I could totally relate. I was like, yeah, motherfucker, cut him up. <laughs> and later, David Wilkerson says, and each piece will say, I love you. that's, I don't know if that's the story. I haven't read the book since. I just remember that's what I remember. And Nikki Cruz freaked out. I freaked out because I could visually see pieces of your body going, talking, going, I love you, Jesus. I was like, whoa, that's, that's one crazy acid trip, right? I was like, oh my God, that's crazy. What kind of love is that? I was just questioning, what kind of love is that? What kind of, that's bullshit. I've never seen love like that. I've never seen anything like that. That man had the biggest balls I've ever seen in my life. David, I've seen some crazy men. I've seen some crazy thing happen. There is a book out in the market right now. This journalist wrote called BTK, Born to Kill. It's about my Vietnamese mafia. Hmm. She wrote that book Then I got on the scene The guy she wrote about His name is Amigo He bought me From the Chinese mafia So anything I do The Vietnamese get money for Hmm. Not the Chinese Because I'm half Vietnamese Chinese I was in that whole stage I mean I was We had a sit down like this They had to shove a suitcase $10,000 To buy me You know And all this stuff Then Amigo A week later After he buys me Walks to his apartment And someone betrays him Shooting the back of his head Hmm. So he could elevate. Yeah. All I'm just trying to tell you in our world there was no such love like David Wilkerson said. He was willing to give up his life so this guy, Nikki Cruz, could hear the love of Jesus. I'm like, what the fuck? This is crazy. I don't understand this. This is the craziest thing. Then he gave me the book. I'm reading it and I'm in prison. And I knew that night if that guy's not gonna kill me, someone else is. I felt in my butt I'm gonna die. I get on my knees, I like get Catholic boy, and I said, put my hands together I say, Hey God, if you're real When I opened my eyes, will you sit down right there and let's have a talk? I opened my eye. No God said, fuck, see, I knew you're not real. I knew it. I knew you're not real. It's just a story. It's religion, whatever the fuck. It's not. There's no God. But I was so desperate. I closed my eyes again and said, okay, God, I'm a good guy. I'm going to give you one more chance. (laughs) (laughs) I laugh now, but you look back. I was dead serious. I'm like, fuck, I am all the other assholes I hang out with. All the other bosses, I'm a pretty good guy. (laughs) I was so desperate. I told God, I'm going to give you one more chance. When I open my eyes, please just show up so we can talk. In the Chinese mafia, we have a thing called sit down. Anything goes wrong. We meet at a restaurant. You bring your two bodyguards. I bring mine. We got 10 guys out that door. You got 10 guys out of that door. Shit goes wrong. Everybody's going to kill each other, right? But we sit down talk about it first. It's called a sit down. Hey Steve This is how you offended me This is what went wrong This is what you did This is what's going to cost you To reciprocate Give my face back Whatever So we always have a talk Sit down So I'm used to that Mm -hmm. Now I'm telling God Let's have a fucking sit down He doesn't play by my rules Okay by the way He never showed up Opened my eyes He wasn't there My heart just sank I just never felt such a Despair like He was my last chance You know this is it He's the last one And so I just gave it. I was like, fuck. There is no God. I'm going to die tonight. Then I heard something. Actually, I felt something. I felt like a warm drop of water hit me top of my head. I felt warmth all over my body. Like, what the fuck just happened? And I heard something. Why is that wrong? Why is that wrong? And I could see things I did. Why is that wrong? Why is that wrong? I kept on asking myself, why is that wrong? Everybody knows. like, Water just kept on top of my head. And his thoughts of, doing this, quote, wrong stuff. Everybody I know does it. why is that wrong? I just got caught, why is it wrong? And all of a sudden, I screamed, I said, stop, stop. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You have to understand, you cannot show weakness in the mafia. When you show weakness, you die, someone's gonna kill you. I heard this, stop, you know? I said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And all of a sudden, I just start crying. And you don't cry in prison. You know what happened, they hear you, we're like animals. Next day you're gonna cry for some re- other reason. But I couldn't stop crying.
0: Mm.
1: I got off my knees, I thought I was floating. It was crazy, it's like all this weight came off of me. And all I kept on saying, I couldn't stop saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That's, I just kept on repeating that, I'm repeating that. I lay down on my bed and it's a cement slab coming out of the wall on this beat up mattress. I hate laying on it every night. It just reminded me that I was in prison and this green military utility blanket is dirty and hairy and probably has thousands of other men's pubic carrying it. I'd only bring it up to my waist even though it was super cold. I mean, I'd crawl all the way up to my neck. Toilet next to me didn't stink. The sink, that drip, couldn't hear it. I literally thought I was floating like on clouds. And I knew if something happened that night, which I convinced I was going to die, that I'd be okay. I didn't even know what that meant. I had no idea. I never had such a peace that I did that night. Hmm. I had this peace. I had this most amazing peace of my life. I never knew it. And then I just remember, after that long story short, I got out, and now I'm talking to God. And you weren't in very long. No, that time, I was probably in almost three weeks. There was one week delay because they're supposed to ship me to Rikers, Rikers Island, mm-hmm. and the guys there cause a riot so I wouldn't go. They had to shut the bridge down for a couple of days. But I, maybe three weeks max. I got out and I just started talking to God. I didn't even know who I was talking to. I just talking. Like, okay, if you're God, you know. And then my Catholic side kicked in. It's like one time I said, oh, am I supposed to get a Bible now? <laughs> that was the craziest conversation I ever had. Because, you know, we have rules we live by. We have, in the mafia, we have rules we live. We have these things we live by. And so I figure Christians... If you follow God, you have to follow these things. They're in a Catholic church. They're always reading this thing called the Bible. So maybe I need to get a Bible. And I got to share this one story. I don't know how far long, but we can pick it up after this if you want. But this is one of the last stories I share with you. And you can ask anything. Because it's so significant. I was like, I need a Bible. But if I ever get caught with a Bible, they're going to kill me because I'm supposed to be Buddhist. That's our quote. Like, I betrayed the family, right? But I said, if I don't get a Bible, though, how do I know how to follow God? How do I know... What I'm supposed to do. I figured I had instructions, right? Like do this, do if you're a Christian, no Catholic growing up will post not do a lot of things and do these things. So figure it's gonna tell me what to do, right? So I did the techniques I've learned to check off the FBI. I found a a bookstore, which why the fuck would I ever go in a bookstore if I knew it'd probably have a Bible in it? So American white books where I'm way out of my comfort zone here. I'm out of Chinatown, uptown. Looking at a bookstore, walking the block three times that way, back one time that way, back one time. <laughs> Nobody's following me. I dive into the bookstore, looking through the magazine section, looking around. Religion. I saw a section that says religious section or whatever. I make my way over there, make sure no one's in there following me. And um, I see this section for the Bible. I was like, holy shit, I'm in trouble. There are so many Bibles, I didn't know which one to pick. Because you can't be wrong, dude. I don't want to pick the wrong Bible. Dude, this is serious shit. I can't die for this, right? And I'm looking at all these different Bible, and I was like, oh my God, which one? I can't ask anybody because I asked somebody, what if, you know, I'm asking somebody and they knocked me out? Or just all these conversations in my head, and I go, I saw one says, Good News Bible. I go, that's the one I need. I need good news. <laughs> Here's the funny part. You ready? It was hardback. It was a hardback Bible. I didn't think much of it at the time, but watch what happens. I'm looking left and right. I sneak my way up to the counter, pay for it in cash. She wants to give me back. God, no, I don't need a bag. I don't need a receipt. I don't need no fucking evidence that I have this Bible. I take it. I shove it in my back behind my jacket right next to my gun. And it cuts me as it goes in because it's corner sharp. It's hard. I'm like, shit, there's not another one. It's not a hardback. And I look back and I think had the Bible in my back and had a gun right next to it. And that meant all the shit happened after that was crazy. I take 10, 20 stories where God saved my life where I should have been dead. But it was just those, just knowing I needed guidance. I needed instructions. I wasn't the man anymore. That shifted my whole life.
0: So why'd you get out after only three weeks? You were facing 60 to life.
1: Yeah. Well, what happened was two things. First, my godfather and them, which I didn't actually get to talk to them directly, talk to my uncles. They say, listen... They're teaching me play-by-play what's going to happen. Now everybody's going to give you a deal, sign the papers, we'll pick you up, and we'll hide you. You know, this is like a long hide. like Because you have to understand every decision we make is based off money. That's why I told you I learned how to do business really well. Every decision we make is based off money. They know I can make money for them. Mm -hmm. They know I'm crazy. They know I know the business things they taught us. They know. So they can move me to a different country, which was Vancouver up in that area, and then... They can move me to back to Hong Kong. They can move me anywhere. The reputation I had, the way I now make money, they still use me. I told you earlier that I'm like a box of tissue at Kleenex. They say, listen, everybody's going to get you signed papers. You sign it. They're going to throw you off on the streets. We'll pick you up. And then they're going to meet with you once a week. We'll tell you exactly what they tell them all that. And I just want to get out. Pretty- I was scared shitless. I was going to die. I didn't realize at the time they were already playing me. The mafia. Then I get out. The FBI played me for a couple of weeks and months And long story short They finally got my godfather They deported him for tax stuff So the FBI threw me away Like Done, we don't need you I was like, what the fuck? That was just the weirdest thing I'm just like, one day They're talking to me, next day Done Like Chinese mafia goes They should have let you, let you go by now Because you know, they got our godfather For whatever, whatever reason We were going dormant now Get your grab bag Go And we'll reconvene in a couple of months And you'll know I go, what the fuck does that mean? Mm -hmm. Literally, everything, it's like the business shuts down. Everybody goes into hiding. Once I got the godfather, everybody goes into hiding. Because now they're going to come after everybody else. Because they know someone is going to try to rise up first. So we get our quote-unquote grab bag, our stash, and we're on your own. There's no more communication. Done. You're on your own. Where'd you go? I went back to Dallas, Texas.
0: I said where you were still wanted
1: yeah I was a fugitive and I said listen you can never sleep you hear noises all the time you know FBI is after you or another mafia is trying to kill you or your own guys are trying to kill you I mean it's just it's the worst lifestyle I never slept never had peace always drugged out and I said hey if I found Jesus in prison I'm gonna grow with him there and I knew I was wanted so I went back to my lawyer who was with me the very first arrest Mm -hmm. and so he knows me he has all my records and he goes, say that again? Hold on, hold on. I'm going to get my business partner, and you're going to tell both of us. I go, okay. So I told him. He got his his partner, and I go, listen, I found Jesus in prison, and if I found him there, I'll grow with him there. You know, I'm a Christian now and all that, and they both laughed in front of my face. I'm like, what the fuck? What are you guys laughing for? They go, don't you know everybody finds Jesus in prison? I go, they do? I was, no way. Some of these guys are assholes. I'm <laughs> you know, like, no way. Those guys know Christ, right? And they go, you know, what I learned later, they were saying, they say that as a story to get good favor. But I'm like, no, I'm fucking sincere. And they like, okay, off the record, you've been gone for like three years. There's statute of limitation, what they get you for, I think two more years, and they're not going to look for you anymore. So basically they said, run for two more years. Why would you turn yourself in? You're going to do some serious time. I will listen, if I found Jesus in prison, I'll grow with him in there. And they said, all right, we'll set the court date. Shit. <laughs> Remember, I'm a freaking little 20-year-old, 21-year-old kid by that time. I don't know shit. I don't know anything about the law. I don't know anything about statute of limitation. I just knew I can't do another day of running. There's, mm-hmm. Why would I run anymore? I had this peace I never understood. I believe in a God that created this universe now. And even though it's fucked up in my life is, at least I had some direction and understanding that, you know, you know, at least I have someone to lean on. It's not all about me making shit happen. And so, I set up the date. We always do. Everybody has, a, like, basically a funeral for me if we leave, get high, drunk, party, womanize. Next day, because they're never going to see me again. Next day, I go off. And I remember I could take a book or something. So I take the Bible with me, show up to court. And the guy goes, I was the first guy there that day. And um, I go into court, and the judge goes, Okay, so you, so and so, this and that. Yep, hits the hammer, sets an arraignment date for me. Now I have to go into prison. So I go intake. I go into the prison. The people from prison are coming out into court on the other side of the room. I go into this cell room. I'm the first guy there, and I go run. I look for the toilet paper first, because that's money in prison. So I get toilet paper, use a pillow, warm, wipe your butt, all kinds of good stuff. If I get all the toilet paper, I'm laying there, I'm like, and I hear the guys come in, getting ready to go to court, and they're all, man, it was like New Year's, and I heard them going, motherfucker, some bitch, this and this, that, kill some bitch. I was like, whoa, it is violent, right? I mean, first time in my life, I thought prison was violent. Before, I just, that's how we live, but it was new. And I was like, oh, God, this is going to get violent. And I know I'm going to have to kill someone to live, or they're going to kill me, you know, just how it is in there. I go, I don't want to kill anybody. And I go, God, you're going to have to help me, because it is crazy in here. First time in my life I ever thought I was crazy in here, man. I'm a repeat offender. I know this shit. I know the process. I know what to do. I know all that. But it was something different. I heard everything new ears. I said, God, you need to help me because I don't want to have to kill anybody and all that. And all of a sudden, the correction officer, CEO, comes up and goes, "Hey, Mr. Ching Chong Chu." I was "Oh fuck, he's gonna be the first I'm gonna kill." You know, it's that racist <laughs> button that he's triggering me. And he goes, "Judge wants to see." I'm like, "Oh shit, he found out about New York." You know, me, and my lawyer is like, man, if he doesn't find out New York, you're fine. But if you find out New York, you'll never see daylight again, right? And I was like, oh my god, he found out about New York. The CO pulls me out, takes me in front of the judge. The judge goes, hey, I got a letter here from District Attorney Marianne Wong. I was like, oh shit, he found out about New York. She's the one that prosecuted me, and she basically—I don't even know how she knew all this shit. I mean, obviously they know everything, but I didn't yeah. know. And she sent him a letter and said, hey, look, I have no jurisdiction, but I just went to tell you the transformation I saw on this guy. He's a part of the most notorious mafia. Has exact number of murders I was a part of. All this shit. And he says, but there's some kind of change in his heart or something. I was like, what? And he's reading it word for word. And if you have any leniency, that's all I request, blah, 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 like that. And the judge goes, hey, do you um, have family here? I goes, yes, sir. He goes, would you go back to school? I go, yes? Like, well, what kind of questions are these? And he kept telling him, I talking, yes, 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 yes. He goes, all right, I'm going to give you parole, da, 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 da. And he hits the mallet. And I just stood there. He goes, son, you got to go over there and talk to that lady. I was waiting for a seal to come grab me and put me back in prison, right? Yeah. He just released me. I walk over there and she asked me to sign this and that. Yeah, go, go to your parole officer by this date and this time and all that. I go, okay. <laughs> I just stood there. She goes, you're free to go. I go, where? I did not know what fucking was happening. Everything happened so fast, at least in my little brain at that time. And I called my buddy, but I didn't have any money. I'm going in, right? And I remember at that time, I think it was uh, 35 cents, maybe it was. Yeah, it was 35 cents. And here's the humility part. This is the new me, the one that had to die. And my pride before would never fucking done this. I had to go look at a white guy in a suit. Same guy coming down the street, right? The symbolism. And asking him for 35 cents. The kid who had to go take uh, food stamps and the food card to eat lunch and stuff. And uh, man, everything in me had to humble myself. I was like, I'm not gonna do that. But if I don't, how the hell am I gonna get out here? I need to leave this place before they realize they made a mistake. <laughs> you know, so I asked this guy to have 35 cents make a phone call. And he gave me money. I called my buddy. He was like, stop fucking around. I go, dude, did I call you Clark? He goes, no. I go. I'm out. He was like, oh shit. So he drove down from Grand Prairie, downtown Dallas, picked me up. I said, dude, please tell me you got some money. He goes, yeah, we're hitting at McDonald's. I ate like a king at McDonald's. I was like, free food. (laughs) Went back (laughs) started a new life. But my new life was not selling drugs or guns. I did dishes because that's all I thought was worth. Went to weight table, I did dishes, at restaurants and stuff, and I waited tables and I became a bartender, lead bartender. Then I went to management program to be a restaurant manager and changed my whole life. And here's the funniest part you know what changed my life, Steve? I went to bed at night, I woke up in the morning in sunlight.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: No shit in you. That is the first step changed my whole life. Mm-hmm. When you go to bed at night, you don't do dumb shit. At night, because you're looking for dumb shit too, because there's nothing to do. And you don't hang out with the people who do dumb shit. When you wake up in the morning, when sunlight comes out, you have the rest of the day to do productive real shit. <laughs> I, mean, I was like, wow, I didn't realize how simple that one adjustment first step I needed was. Really? That changed everything for me. You can't hang out with same friends. And I moved from Grand Prairie Arlington area. I moved to downtown Dallas, White Rock Lake, yep. around that area, working at Chili's. I lived in an apartment. All Mexicans who couldn't speak English. Immigrant, hardworking family people. And I um, had one mattress in my apartment. I slept outside in my front patio in a hammock. Because I didn't want to be inside. Mm -hmm. That's all I owned. A mattress and a hammock. Worked every day as much as I could all day long. It was crazy. Changed my whole lifestyle. So that's pretty much it.
0: So that's not Some pretty much details. it. That's not pretty much it. <laughs> so where'd you go after Dallas? Well, because you'd like.
1: I was in Dallas. I was doing real good. Seriously, I asked my ex girlfriend help sign for co-sign for that apartment, and I got in that apartment. I worked hard. I, I was still drinking like a fish. Restaurant industry and all that, but I wasn't doing more drugs. I wasn't selling drugs. Very tempted because freaking every night you look at your tips and your pay. You're like, you're not really making much. I was like, oh my god, this. Normal life is hard, <laughs> but I was committed to it because I knew there was a difference in me. I was talking to God every day. You know, just I actually had like it was almost like a father son relationship. Now I'm starting to talk to him, like if, if I had a dad, how I would talk to him. And also, I got this phone call from this FBI agent, Bill Oldham, who was the FBI agent who arrested me. I go, How did you find me? He goes, You have to understand his personality. He goes, I'm fucking FBI <laughs> I was like Oh shit Sorry That's right and he goes Listen You gotta leave now I go What do you mean They found you Who found you The mafia Cause I never checked back in I wouldn't turn myself I never checked back in Right So If I didn't check back in Was I the one Turning our uncle Did All kinds of shit Or our godfather And all this <clears throat> They said They found you And they can't kill you There's two guys On the plane right now Going to Dallas I go From New York I go Nope Not gonna do it I'm turning over a new leaf. I'm a good guy now. <laughs> That's I, I still remember telling him I'm a good guy now. Because what the fuck? He goes, "I'm good. If I leave, I'm gonna break this lease. My ex-girlfriend co-signed it. I'm not gonna ruin her credit. I'm doing really good at the restaurant. And, you know, it was kind of humbling for me to say that, even though I went up from you no know, waiter to training waiters to bartender and all that, and head bartender. I thought, you know, I'm doing good. I'm climbing yeah. the corporate ladder. I'm about to get into management training, and all this good stuff. So long story short, he goes. Fuck you. You're going to die. <laughs> he goes, you need to leave now. I go, nope, can't do that. And he goes, yes, listen, I'm faxing a letter right now to the owners or the department manager. Tell them this is FBI case. They won't get your ex-girlfriend. You no, know, will lose her credit and all that. And they'll release you. Oh, you would do that? He goes, listen, either you do that or you're going to die. He literally did like instantly. He wired his own personal money to me. Bought me a plane ticket to ready Aurora, Colorado. I never fucking heard of Aurora, Colorado my whole life. My stepdad was out here. And I go, and he's been with me, come visit him, stay with him, all that. And I was like, well, shit, if I'm, Aurora, Colorado, you know, like, I've never heard of it. I guarantee no Chinese mafia has heard of Aurora, Colorado. We only know what the fuck that is. You know what I mean? There's no Chinatown, no nothing there. You know, there's no income stream for us, right? So I went to Aurora, Colorado. <laughs> like within 48 hours, I was in Aurora, Colorado. It was the craziest shit in my life craziest thing ever happened and I showed my stepdad's door and the Dallas probation offices made a deal with Aurora because of the life-threatening thing Aurora never had a case big as me they literally had the schematics of my apartment and then they would come in like two o'clock in the morning with a team to make sure I don't have drugs or guns I'd get knocked on the door and there's like eight guys with guns on the windows outside of me everything and they'd search the whole place.
0: Regularly? They stop- huh? Regularly?
1: They did it regularly and they stopped doing it regularly and they just had the PO come. Yeah. Then the PO would come with one or two people, then the PO would come just by herself. It <laughs> was craziest. I'm like, what the fuck? I'm different. See, my world was different. I don't understand. I didn't know that they saw this shit all the time. Everybody lasts a week or two and they get re locked up. Well, I should know. I've been locked up five times. I, I understood it. But I was sincere. So I'm following God now. I'm churning over new leaf and all that. And they're like, yeah, we heard this shit all the time. I'm like, okay, go ahead, search. And my stepdad was like, what the fuck is going on? He never knew all the shit I got into, right? So he didn't understand why these people are raiding our apartment, basically, right? So one time at night, I goes, hey, God, aren't Christians supposed to go to church or something? All right, thanks, man. <laughs> That's how I used to pray to God. I'm smoking two packs of Marlboros a day. Drink at least minimum six pack a night after work, or because I was doing some construction work, and um, didn't do construction work that time. I was doing uh, retail work, and I was at the rural mall, and that night before, I just asked God, "Should I, you know, don't we go to church as Christians or something?" All right, thanks. This kid walks in, I'm like, "Sign up, kid's white. That Dad got his dad's credit card guarantee. I'm gonna get some commission off this guy. I've got him all different sets of clothes. He's coming in and out, and I swore it's gonna be biggest commission check I ever got." At the end he goes, All right, now I don't think I'm of this. Motherfucker, you just wasted 45 minutes of my life, you right. And I was like, You're gonna die, kid. And he goes, walks out and he turns around and goes, Hey, by the way, you wanna go to church with me? I go, What? I was like, What just happened here? I thought I was gonna hit this kid up for all this money, commission. He gets his dad's credit card, and he invites me to church. And I remembered last night I asked God, I go to church. I said, Yeah. So he invites me to church. It was a i show up for a Wednesday. Maybe that was a Monday, but i show up on Wednesday. His church invites me Wednesday night, and I'm driving up there, and my car is full of smoke cause I'm, like, nervous. Like, I'm not good enough to go to church. I'm a bad person. All these thoughts go in my head, and then I can't fucking find the place. I'm so angry. I'm looking for a building with a steeple on the church, maybe a bell or something, you know, whatever my, my, my stereotype of church was, and I couldn't find it. So now I'm, like, 30, 45 minutes late, and I pull up. And it was in the middle of apartment complex. I was like, and "Remember back then we had Thomas guy so you had to print that shit out." I was like, "Something was wrong. With this printer, they gave me the wrong address." It was a community center in the middle of apartment complex. Oh, Woodside Baptist Church was it? Woodside Baptist Church. It's a small little Southern Baptist church. And they're in a community center. I was like, what? How's this a church? I was like, oh shit, they better not have snakes. Because you see on 2020 where they're walking around snakes and stuff like that. Because <laughs> they're not in a regular church building, right? Yeah. The, of course they're gonna have snakes. That's only my context of Christianity. And I pull up and I know I'm about 30 minutes late already, but I'm like, no, I can't go in. I'm a bad person. I don't belong there. They're going to throw holy water on me. I'll burn or something like that. You know, I'm just making all this crazy stuff in my head. Smoking like Chi Chi Train. Had the windows down. I'm guaranteed like Chi Chi Chong smoke. Cut me out of the car. It was just going crazy. I just said, fuck it. So I don't know. I just build up the courage. I open the door. Get out. Slam the door. I don't know where to go. I don't know. I'm not. I'm demonizing this guy, I'm victimizing this guy, like his fault for blaming me, he's not even here, and, and I don't know where to go, and so I'm just blaming, and blaming, blaming, and I walk up to the door from the parking lot, that kid standing in front of the door waiting for me. I go, what the fuck is going on? At least 30 minutes, minimum, at 30, 45 minutes. And I go, what are you doing? He goes, you told me you were coming so I was waiting for you. I was like, oh my God, right there, my heart sank. That was another form of love that I didn't understand. You know, we never waited on each other. It's like, fuck you, we'll leave you, all kinds of stuff. But that kid, I don't know what was, how God used him, what he was doing. But he goes, I was waiting for you. I was like, that was just weird. I just didn't understand, quote, quote, that love. And so he takes me in. It was kind of scary because, now listen guys, you remember the background I come from, there's no one in the, a whole church or whatever. He takes me down, downstairs. I'm not used to basement. I'm from Texas. Fucking Colorado has basement. I was like, are you going to take me down and shoot me? What the fuck? You know, I thought, like, seriously, the FBI got this kid to kill me. Uh, not had the mafia. And he took me down to this basement. And we walked into this room. Room's open, small room like this. Maybe four or six people in there, the teacher or whatever. And he goes, all right, this is your room. I go, what do you fucking mean this is my room? And remember back then, I was still cussing like a sailor. I, and he's like, I'm in high school. You're in college or college age or whatever. This is college. And I was like, oh, you're coming in <laughs> me?" I was like, no, you're not leaving me. You're the only person I know. And I got in. I don't know if this is a first conversation. I know I just kept coming back, but I remember one conversation that haunted me. Like I could not sleep. It haunted me. And the teacher was teaching like, God wants one woman to have one man. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> you're fucking joking, right? And the guy was a red hair, pale skin. You can think of freckles. And he's never met anybody like me. He told you, you grew up in the church. And he's like, Sebastian, um, first easy on the cussing, <laughs> you know? He goes, no, God wants you to have one man to have one woman. I go, what? I mean, it's like someone took a sledgehammer, hit me the side of the head. My mom had at least five men, quote unquote, married. Never knew my biological dad. Multiple men at the house, never been married with. None of my friends had parents that were married still, all divorced. Mm-hmm. Multiple guys I knew had multiple women Then I was A mafia boss Had the whorehouse We were never allowed To have a woman You can never have one woman You can never get married Because it could cause war If she wanted Something for me I didn't want to give it to her She'd flirt with you Because she knows you're My enemy And like, oh, now we're in war You know what I mean So that whole paradigm One 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 man Was like a sledge I mean across the head But something my body Longed for Like this is true This is like mm-hmm. good shit This is like It was meant to be right because I had some heartbreaks in high school and shit like that, right? But then um, I just remember I could never sleep. I just kept on thinking, is that true? What does it say in the Bible? Who says it's true? What? And now I'm questioning everything. Because I figured that such a fairy tale out there is not real. I know it's not achievable. You know what I mean? And that was such... I still remember that's the very first Bible say quote, unquote, that just hit me upside the head sideways so hard. I didn't... It was just so foreign like foreign language it was awesome you know it was awesome because that's when i would literally come home well the one guy's at the church gave me a job doing construction He was a construction guy and aurora listen winter freaking wearing shorts during snow i'm the guy woke up three o'clock in the morning got into parking lots at four drove around and make sure all the snow's pushed off so when customers come we in construction we i've never seen a basement in my life motherfucker they're building these houses with frames, and we had to take the trash and throw it up above so we could get the trash from there. And we're all wearing shorts and t-shirts, and snow is on the ground. I'm like, this is the craziest place in the world, you know what I mean? And now I know why no Asians are in Colorado. There's fucking snow. We don't have snow in Vietnam, you know what I mean? It's like crazy. But um, I worked for the construction company, and then I would come home. And I couldn't leave before, I think it was like 5 a.m. i had to be home by 7 because of my parole. And I would drink at least a six pack of beer, smoke a couple packs of cigarettes while studying the Bible. But here's the coolest part I'd light up a cigarette, I'd start smoking it, and I had a Bible, Bible dictionary, and a regular dictionary. And I'd look up all these words, and the cigarette, every time I lit, it just burned itself out. I'd light another one, take a couple of, and I realized I stopped smoking. I stopped smoking. Mm. It was the craziest thing, Mm. you know? Instead of drinking six, seven, eight beers a night, I drank like one or two. And it's just more I saved the Bible, more everything declined. And it's not because I said, oh, smoking is bad, drinking is bad. I just found something better Mm. that would consume my time. Mm. Isn't that crazy? I still remember that was like, because I've tried to quit smoking several times for my mom, who I love dearly. I mean, she's my hero, my idol, my gift from God. Because she said, no, she's going to kill you. It's not good for you. I could never quit for her. Never. Never. Maybe for a day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or half an hour when she's not around or whatever. Yeah. But I couldn't do it. And I remember I quit that time. Because, not because I thought it was bad or anything. I just found something better. Isn't that yeah. crazy? Yeah. Yeah.
0: So where'd you go from Aurora?
1: Oh, oh. Man, I totally forgot about that. So, I was in Aurora. and They teach me this thing called the Roman's Road. There's... I don't know what the room was really or Five, seven steps to Jesus, whatever. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? There is a road to Jesus <laughs> and you can memorize it. And you can tell people, you know, and I said, awesome. I memorized it. I asked Pearl, let me go back. Dallas, Dallas said, fuck you when I can take you. It was hard enough for us to get rid of you. Get rid of you. <laughs> it was so funny. So that was the only prolonged part. I finally got them, let me go. Because I told my, I wanted to go back and tell my friends and family about Jesus before they die. <laughs> I think that's what helped it. So I literally got back to go back to Dallas. I went, the first time I got back, my family's like, all oh, so excited and all that. And uh, the next day I go to the lion's den. That is the club that we had. We get the corner table. We do croquet, sing songs, get drunk, do drugs and do business there. And I walked in and everybody looked like they saw a ghost. Because they know either I died or I became a monk or priest, because that's the only two religions, you know monk or priest. And so they heard I got religious, they thought I became a priest or a monk, or I died. That was the rumor going on. So I walked in, everybody's like, what the fuck, you're alive, right? And the, second, the guy in charge used to be my right-hand man. And I looked at him instantly, I said, listen boss, I am not here to take over, you are the boss, blah, blah. I'm here to tell you guys how I changed, I became a Christian, I wanna tell you about the love of Jesus, like, yeah, come sit down. Tell the other guys move, the other guys move, snaps his fingers, call the girls, curls come sit in my life. Listen, I changed I'm not like that. Well, she could stay. <laughs> I was still a man and she was gorgeous. And um I, I was trying to tell them about you, they're laughing me in my face. They're like, This is so fucking weird. You know, they couldn't hear me. It's like I was speaking another language. Like we went that to the pool hall afterwards, I went to take a piss. This guy, the other guy comes in, and he's looking left and right, like, what the fuck? It's like he, no, this is our pool hall. You don't have to be scared, right? But I didn't realize what he was doing. He's looking around making sure no one, none of our guys are in there. He goes, hey, dude, did you really get out? I want to get out. I was like, what the fuck, really? I was like, what's the Roman road again? Jesus is the way. You know, I'm thinking all this yeah. stuff in my head. I'm trying to tell him as we're taking a piss. And this other guy walks in and he starts talking weird shit. And like, fuck you, and this and that. You know, just small talk. I was like, what just happened? And I didn't realize until later on that if we showed weakness, we died. And that was always our theme. Once you show weakness, you die, and that's how I had to become a Christian. First of all, show weakness, I'd die. But none of them were ready to show weakness in front of everybody else. So I couldn't quote unquote evangelize to them in a group. It was always I had talked to them one on one. But then I stayed back in Dallas, and that's when I started, you know, went to my second church and stuff like that. I started growing in my faith, hung around a whole different group of people, and things. Then I was going to like five Bible studies a week. Every night, I was volunteering at the youth, which I was learning more than I was giving. Singles, men, community. My pastor, Irving Bible Church goes, Pastor Matthew McQuitty, I think his name was. He goes, hey, before you die, I heard you're going like five Bible studies a week. Yeah. I mean, I can't get enough. Is there more? He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Before you die, why don't you just go to Bible college? And listen, this is how we're all still. I go, get the fuck out of here. There's a Bible college? He goes, yeah, we to have to work on that. I still remember he was like he loved me, but he was like always telling the youth pastor, dude, we gotta take off the edge. I took some kids, I didn't know it was wrong, or quote quote, bad, or whatever. The crow, the movie The Crow came out back yeah. then. Yeah. I took them, they're all coming back, yeah. I love no, the crow. The best leader, youth leader in the they had to pull me, so said, yeah, we don't really want to take them. <laughs> I didn't know stuff like that back then, right? But then, long story short, him and a business guy in the church, the pastor and all them gave me a job working there so it wouldn't be free and they scholarship me to Bible college and Ooh. and I still remember going to Bible college and they're like so what are you here for what are you going to do I go I'm here to learn the Bible it's a Bible college right you know because I didn't even know there was such a college I teach you the Bible they go no no at the end are you going to be a pastor youth pastor a professor I go I don't know I'm just here to learn the Bible I go you can become a pastor they get paid they get money <laughs> I didn't even know pastors got paid. I was like, what the fuck? This is crazy. Whole new world. Crazy world. Well, I got to tell you one story about Bible college. Because uh, so they teach you how to do evangelism. Teach you about, you know, people getting saved, coming to Jesus. They just got to know the guy repent of their sins. All this stuff, right? Oh, why the fuck are we in here? Why are not we going to tell people? So in between classes, like I've had like two hour break or something. Just downtown like right by Baylor Medical Center. Right across the street from DTS. I'd walk out. I'm on the streets because someone handed me a pamphlet. I got tracks in my back pocket, baby. I'm handing people across the street, going to bed at a medical center. I'm asking people to need prayer and stuff. People are spitting at me, yelling at me, cussing at me, don't yell here. And I'm having the greatest time of my life, right? What do they call them? The dean or the president of school? would look out his window. He's like, what's this kid doing? So he called me. I'm like, oh, shit, I'm in trouble again. I used to get in so much trouble because I do all, like I'm smoking at the school. You're not supposed to smoke. All kinds of crazy stuff. And I just do random stuff that, I just do as a human being, right? I didn't know these rules. And so I thought, oh man, I'm in trouble again. And they go, "Uh, no, no, you're not in trouble. What are you doing out there? Oh, I'm telling people about the love of Jesus. I'm giving them a track. My phone number's on the back. Why, is there a better way to do it? Should I be doing something different? He goes, no, 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 no. Hey, would you take some of our students and teach them to do what you're doing? I go, heck yeah. He goes, we'll give you a scholarship. I'll take that too, but I don't know what that is. they give me a scholarship for school <laughs> then i take people to deep elm with me on friday nights i take them deep Elm. we we'll walk around and it was so easy these people are lining up for a concert or something they are staying 30 45 minutes in line sometimes an hour they're not going anywhere so i'm going up and down the line some people will receive prayer take the card most of them cuss at me yelled at me and then when we actually go inside some of the clubs i had no cover charge you know, we'd talk to people, just get pissed, throw beer at us, or then the security guard kick us out. I'll just, I got stories after stories about that. But um, then they gave me a scholarship for doing that. I was like, wow, this school thing's easy. <laughs> you know, me? I was just living out what they were teaching me. Yeah. yeah, It was really cool. That was one of the best seasons of my life. Hmm. I mean, it was the best. I'd seen this kid, and I could hear God lure tell me, that guy. So I'd just walk up to him. Not intimidating too more. I had a big white man syndrome. I hate white people, afraid of them, feel insecure, insignificant. But I walked up with this kid. And he fucking looked like his God's gift. He was like Thor, just a God from heaven, right? I look at him like, what the fuck am I going to tell this guy? He doesn't need Jesus. He gets everything. I said, hey man, this can sound crazy, but God put my heart come tell you that he loves you. And if you need prayer, I'll pray for you right now. He falls on his knees in front of me. I always went with my buddy Sammy Lopez. And he falls on his knee right in front of me. He's crying because he why did you say that? Why would you say that? I told you, God just put on my heart. I don't even know who you are. He goes, you don't know who I am. I don't know. He goes, I'm from California. I'm famous. I'm this, this, that. I don't know. I'm all like, I don't know. I'm almost apologetic for telling him this. He's crying. He said, please pray for me. And then God just put on my heart because I used to just take stray dogs home every night uh, from there. I said, no, look, you don't have to go. You're going to catch AIDS or you're going to get some disease. Don't do that. Don't go drink. Don't go do drugs. Come back with me. Come back to my apartment, right? He goes, no, I can't. I'm not worth it. This, that. He goes, just pray for me. I mean, I just remember that night. I walked out. I was like, what the fuck just happened? And just more I listened to my intuition, what God put in my heart, the more crazy stuff like that would happen. Mm. It was the craziest thing. It was the craziest thing. I literally... Feel God leading me to do certain things, cause I know, cause I wouldn't fucking do it. One time, my friend Jay Bartlett, he's a crazy bastard. They'd have a band on live stage. Soon as they took a break, all right, we'll be back in fifteen minutes. Jay would run up on stage, grab, "Hello everybody, my name's Jay Bartlett. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. I'm here to bottles start flying at him. Oh motherfucker! I, started, I was like, dude." Don't ask me to do that, God. That's crazy, man. I've seen that guy kicked out so many freaking clubs and bars. It was crazy. But that was a cool, cool season in my life. It was a really cool season. I got to really understand the love of God and what I really love about Crystal College. They never told us what to believe. They only told us, read this, here's what historically said, here's what other people say, here's what say, now it's between you and God and he just gave us all this shit to Mm -hmm. go sift through, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But I always wanted them to tell us because I didn't want to be wrong, you know what I mean? I didn't want the responsibility of having my own faith Mm -hmm. at that time. Looking back, I understand that because I was so young, I was so young in the faith, I just went, tell me this what to believe. And I just love my professors, they never told me. They never told me what to believe. And I, I look back and I was like, Man, that's some solid stuff. Good, good education I got. That's mm. some good stuff. Yeah, that's a lot of potholes in between, but for time's sake, that's the journey.
0: So, what about after that?
1: After Criswell?
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, I went and volunteered at this thing called World Impact for a summer. I didn't even know what that was. It was so weird. We're in chapel. This guy come and speaks. His name is Keith Phillips, talking about the urban I go, Shit, you're talking about me. That's how I grew up, right? And he says, we go there and tell him about love of Jesus and stuff. I go, hell yeah. After I come sign up and I remember this guy, he's from Dallas. He was on the board. Damn it. What's his name now? Anyways, he signs me up and I go, all right, me. what do we do? He goes, well, this summer you could go out there and serve for three months. What do we do out there? Will we do Bible clubs? This and that. I go, whoa, oh, I don't know what all that means, but it sounds like a deal. Let's do it, right? And um, California is kind of, Sexy lure from being Dallas, you know And hearing all the movies and stuff I said, yeah, do it He goes, well, you have to raise like X amount of money I'm like, oh, shoot You know, I was like Now I'm controlling my language a little bit better I'm like, Oh, shoot Maybe not. maybe he'll forgive mean, I just kind of walked off And I get these letters And saying, we have to raise support I, go, I don't even know what that means I was so embarrassed to ask people for money for. You know, I mean, I'm really grateful They're paying for my college They give me a job so I can live off of While I'm going to college and all this And I didn't know what that means And my. Community at that time is asking me, you know, what are you doing? What are you going to do? And all this stuff this summer and all that. You know, I was at Bible college and I was telling them, oh, yeah, here's a check 100 bucks. Here, yeah, this. I was like, why you guys give me money? Well, you have to raise support, don't you? I go, is that what it's called? So I've learned all that. Ship me to, to um, Fresno, California, Armpit, California for three months. And I never saw the reality of God. Now, listen, you're from Dallas for us. You know this. This is 90s. Mid nineties, maybe no. We got near '96. Yeah, mid nineties, '93, '94, probably. I go there to. Fr- I don't know Fresno, California. I don't know what the temperature is like. 120 all the time there. It's crazy. I have white polo shirts, starch. This is Texas, right? Khaki pants. Everybody's gonna be like, "You gonna be dressing like that? How was you supposed to dress?" Like a week later, I'm like. I'm digging through our donation bin, getting clothes. It was hot as heck, wearing shorts and t-shirts. But they'll never forget that story. Every day, I'm wearing starch, white polo shirts, khaki pants. And they're like, what the? Who the heck? And I'm in the inner cities. I mean, the worst part of Fresno, California, where bulldogs with the gangs there fighting crips and all that stuff. It was stupid. But I remember that. I saw the practicality, the reality of the love of Jesus. And so... I come back. It was best summer ever. I'm about to graduate Criswell College, uh, Bible College, get my associates there. Oh, before I went there, I went to get my GED, and I was a youth leader at the or uh, my Bible church, and I had to go to take your GED test. And I go to take it, and I'm so like embarrassed. All these high school kids there and all that, and I go in there take it. And one of the and the other kids are there at same Saturday take SAT test, and I know. Also, one of my students saw me there. He goes, "Hey, Smash, what are you doing here?" I go. Oh, you know, it was such a humbling moment. But I got my GD, about to get my AA. And as things are culminating, part of me is historic still. And I said, well, you know, if I'm going to have a new future, I got to close all my tight ends. I got to clean up my loose ends and tight ends. And I had so much anger and resentment in my stepdad because he never came visit me in prison. He never explained to me what happened with those kids, why they made fun of me. In hindsight, I was wishing I was wishing who would have told me, "Hey, they were making fun of you because they 're insecure and jealous because they weren 't pointing out what 's wrong with you they were pointing out what everything 's uniquely different about you that they don 't have, and they were just insecure and scared about it. you know that to me is called leadership, and he didn 't give me any of that and so where 's a Bible study one night It's a singles Bible study, and one of my best friend was there and they're like, okay, so what everybody's doing this week and all that. And I told them, I'm going up to Hayes, Kansas to see my stepdad. They're like, oh my gosh, you're going to reconcile with him? I go, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> and they go, what are you going to do? Well, I invite him to the lake and we're going to go fishing because that's all he always wanted to do. And I hated fishing all that because that's always what he wanted to do and all that. But as we're going to go fishing, I'm going to kill him and drop him bottom of the lake. They go, ha what? They're like, are you joking? Are you like, no, no, seriously. You know? He's like the last string in my life that I need to I have closure and all that. Dude, my friend looked at me and I don't think I've ever heard this guy He goes, You're not going to get any fucking closure. I was like, He's a good Christian guy. I've never heard him cause." He was like yelling at me like, No, you're not. You know, He's like, You are not going to go kill your dad. And he just went off. I was like, Dude, I've never seen you like this. I, but Carl, I said, Calm down, man. And he was like, He was like losing his shit. Like he could not believe I was going to do that. And he explains to me that. No, God wants you to forgive him, not kill him. <laughs> and so it was, it was a crazy weekend. And he made me stay the weekend with him. So that whole season of my life was seeing the practicality of the love of Jesus. See, we can always tell people, don't do something where Jesus loves you. I still remember I had an argument at school and with the other Christians and church, everybody, about abortion and stuff like that. And I said, why are you guys so hard on these people who have abortion? You don't know what they're going through, all that. I go, if you really want to help them, why don't you let them live with you and take care of the child with them? Help them get on their feet. And Harry's like, are you fucking crazy? They're like, who, who are you? But that season, even having those thoughts where I learned the pragmatic love of Jesus. Mm-hmm. I mean, because for Carl, making me stay with him that whole weekend and just constantly having conversation, transformed the renewing my mind of what love looks like and forgiveness. Man, honestly... I'd probably kill my dad by now, you know? Because he didn't just say, I'll pray for you. Oh, I fucking hate when people say, I'll pray for you. Fuck you, you liar. First of all, you're not going to pray it's because you don't know what to do. It's not really your fault. We just have a shitty culture. But no, he said, no, you're going to stay with me. I'm not going to keep you out of my sight. <laughs> I was like, what? This is crazy. Come on. But I remember that whole weekend spending with him helped me really see how to forgive and how to love. And it, well, it took me. Don and I've been married 96 probably 10 15 years after getting married for me really forgive him and let it all go but he was on that catalyst that started that journey Yeah. so yeah I had some crazy in-between stories
0: <laughs> yeah so where'd you go after you were to live college
1: I went to uh, California started my first <laughs> church because of dr. Keith Phillip's book dare to make a disciple and I went my my wife's family has seven pastors, Vietnamese churches in it, six or seven. And one of them said, hey, will you start a church with English-speaking youth? I was like, wow, this is called a church plant. I just graduated. I get to go to do a church plant and all that. So I went out there to teach them God's word in English versus Vietnamese so they could understand it. And the rest of his history was out there for 25 years. Planted one, two, three churches, four churches after that. They were like business to me. Starting four businesses, startups. <laughs> yep, that's when California became my home. Twenty-five years later.
0: How'd you get out of ministry?
1: Wanting to make disciples, literally. So I have every year I took twelve guys. Remember, I'm very naive. I don't know shit. I'm not doing the it's normal. I just doing whatever the Bible says, what I thought was right. And I take twelve guys a year and disciple them and go deep in the Word with them, teaching how to read the Bible. Teach them how do We went through the whole book, Experiencing God, and the workbook, and like they had to teach someone else. So it was a whole year process. And then um, one of the guys was single, a businessman. I didn't know how successful it was because I didn't really give a shit. He was just having a lot of mom problem. So I helped him through all. That. He goes, What you're teaching me? You need to teach other businessmen. I go, Okay, you get them and I'll teach them. Right. And he goes, No, we need to start a business. And we started a coaching business, basically. And so long story short, we started coaching business the more disciples I tried to make, the more church resisted me because it wasn't the Orthodox way. It wasn't the traditional way. It wasn't in the system. And so I kept on rubbing against the church. And so they wanted me to stay in the box. And I said, well, I'm making some income through this way. I'm changing more lives than just preaching on Sundays. And I just made the transition. Yeah, hang up my hat, made transition.
0: How long ago was that?
1: Oh, man. For a while, so my son was five, seven. So he's twenty-one now. So we went to Bangkok for two years. We were doing a church plant out there. Ended up planting two churches out there: house church and a home church. And then we came back two years after that, planting another church. Um, So he was like nine, junior high by then. Eight years ago, and later I started coaching pastors, leadership, for about three years. And they asked me to pastor their church because they're without pastor. I pastored it for less than a year and shut it down because they had a pastor before that for five years. They didn't have a pastor and it was crazy. Put it this way, the the oldest guy, because this Asian American church, had the most influence was saying you can't be a leader until you saw gold dust fall out of the sky or on your teeth. <laughs> it's just a no <laughs> hierarchy thing. It was stupid. I was like, you know, we got to shut this down. Wow. You guys are all, and I was trying to do leadership development. They wouldn't do it. They wouldn't take responsibility. Of their leadership they want to be told what to do and so because in five years there's no pastor, everybody's doing their own shit so long story short that was the last one and it hurt a lot because we left the church for a while as doing church missions you know plant church in Thailand came back plant church gave away did business coaching to Christians business owners and then I wanted to go back to being pastor I just love being pastor making disciples shepherd preaching and then um when that fell through we just did uh coaching full-time business coaching full-time for maybe last seven years. And it was it was hard because my heart was always pastoring and shepherding. And I'll tell you how crazy our pastoring and shepherding was. My house in California has a door code in front. So on Sundays, we're cleaning up the church, whatever. I come home. People are in my house cooking. Guys in the back with the fire pit. Kids swimming in the pool. And that's how our community was. Fourth of July, we'd have all these friends over. Um, we had like four barbecue grills. 75, 80 people there. Just, it'd be crazy. And a lot of it's non-Christian friends. We did a mission trip to Vietnam. We had two poker tables set in my garage, smoking cigars, playing poker. Maybe three at that time. The girls were dressed up in long Vietnamese dresses, serving alcohol and drinks. Our non-Christian friends, what the fuck? You guys are doing what? They didn't even know what mission trips were. They gave us more money than the Christian that showed up. Then my friend's dad was the ambassador in Taiwan to U.S. And he got, he goes, you guys aren't glorifying God. There's alcohol here. And you guys are smoking cigars in the garage and stuff like that. And I just told him, I'm sorry your dad had to see this. We didn't expect his dad to show up. We didn't know where he was coming from. His dad just showed up out of nowhere. But that's how unorthodox I was. Mm-hmm. But the non-Christians were more excited what we're doing. Gave us more money than the Christians mm-hmm. for that mission trip. On that mission trip, my three boys went with me. We have pictures. Um, we baptized like twenty-eight Vietnamese factory workers during that time. It was just insane time. But that I was just non-orthodox, you know what I mean? And so I didn't know how to play in the box. I didn't know there was a box to play in. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I just got too excited and had great ideas and I saw everything like a business, how to scale it, how to make it grow, how to, you know, make it profitable. And um they didn't like it. It broke my heart, really did. Me and my wife been really hurt because we gave my wife changed the whole children's ministry over. I mean, it was running like beautiful. The kids were learning a lot. We gave homework assignments to the parents. cause we say, hey, we're only your, um, we're a supplement. We are not primary spiritual leaders for your kids. You are, but we'll give you the tools. They didn't want to do the work. They wanted us do all the fucking work. We're like, oh man, if that wasn't working. My wife turned the whole thing around where they saw the value of doing the work, leading their kids, that we did practical, just because it wasn't under Christian labels or Christian training, we did kids training or marriage things. And they said, "Where what Christian material does this come from? God? You know, it didn't come from, I don't know what material at that time, but it didn't come from focus on family. So why are we using that material? It's a secular source or something. Because it's proven scientifically, like Gottman is one of my favorite marriage material used. It's proven, Gottman material, right? It's like, It's it's not explicit Christian, but God still used jackasses to speak. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so, and I get in trouble for stuff like that. (laughs) And I was like, man, this is the craziest. I just didn't fit in the box, you know. And so, didn't I? Didn't fit in the box.
0: Now you've told me Mm -hmm. that Norm Miller, right? Interstate Batteries. Yep. Interstate Batteries was involved.
1: He mentored
2: was, you? Yeah, he
1: was a uh, chairman of my board in oh, Dallas Yeah, with World Impact. I was a city director of Dallas World Impact, and Noah Miller was my board member, and he taught while, me a while, lot.
0: While you were in California?
1: Or? No, no. I moved to Dallas for a year because we just had our first or second kid because they're a year apart. We go, man, it'd be great to have parents to help us out. Donna's parents, my mom. But we lived on corner Malcolm X and Martin Luther King by Fair Park. They didn't want to come down there. <laughs> Russ is like, hell no, you know. It, no, seriously, it was that's a bad area, bad bad area. And because um, that's what we did, we lived where we ministered and uh, to prostitutes. And I even with the mission organization, I got in my trouble because I had this prostitute live with us because she was pregnant, yeah. <laughs> and then I couldn't let her live herself, so I brought the pimp come live with us too. Wow. <laughs> and, yeah. Well, I was like, hey, man, they want to know the love of Jesus. We had love on them. They'd That's hold awesome. Josh, my second son. They call him Baby Buddha. We just talked about that. His nickname was Baby Buddha. And <laughs> um, But let me tell you a story about those two. Because she, she was late. They were living in a cardboard box behind someone's guy's house. And when I walked up and down the alleys, I'd see them. Always invited them for dinner. Finally got them to move in and live with us because she was pregnant. Take them to the hospital and doctors and all that. Try and give them another job and um, get them drug rehab and He'd get up like five o'clock, go to this place, they'd pick him up, then they're going to go build prisons, come back to me twenty bucks that day. Wow. And he was like, I can't do this, Sebastian. I was like, fucking humbling me. I totally remember that. Remember I told you I grocery, uh, waited tables and I was like, What the fuck is this? And then we can make two hundred that day easy. Yeah. And he's making twenty bucks and and also he disappears. And so we're telling her not to chase him. You got the baby, to think about, you can live here with us, blah, blah, blah. And um, Long story short, he disappears, she goes after him. Everybody's crying because she's part of our family now. We know she's gonna lose a baby, we know they're gonna go back on drugs and all that, but when they live on the streets I saw they had, that, their girlfriend boyfriend's, he was pimping her out for drugs, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So long story short, a year later, I get a knock on my door, I open it up, and I look at them, they look familiar, these couple. Bobby, Cherie, and they go, you don't remember us? It's Bobby I go, who the, what? And I go nuts. Because they hit rock bottom, they stayed with us. They ended up some kind of rehab. Somebody found them, rehab, shipped them to St. Louis or something yeah. to rehab house. Yeah. They became the leader of the rehab house and all that. So they wanted to come back and tell us, thank you, because we were the one who got them started and all that. Nice. And they're they following Jesus now as a Christian rehab house. And we're all having this celebration. They did lose the baby, but we just celebrate that they're clean. They're leading the a sober living house and all this stuff. Man, it was just crazy. But you know, during that time, I didn't do that for that. I didn't know. I just knew in the moment, this is what love looked like. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And we had this one kid live with us for a while, Vietnamese, he, because we found him because he's in our neighborhood buying drugs from everybody. And he got kicked out of his family because he was all that. So long story short, that was a sad story because he ended up ODing. He left mm-hmm. our house. He was living with us, getting clean, doing Bible study, doing all these things. Then like he went back to see his family. His family just, just beat the shell, and of like, He went on a binge and OD'd and died. That was a hard story, but you know all those times in those moments we just did what was we felt was love in that moment, and it just didn't fit the their mold. It didn't fit the parameter, and like a lot of times, it didn't fit the legal guidelines of what we're able to do as missionaries. <laughs> so a couple of those, I realize now that was I pressed some lines I didn't realize, but um, yeah, that was a crazy season. Norm Miller helped us build the first community center in uh, downtown. Fair Park area, had IBM Lab. We got all the suburban churches. Now, you know, it's not far of downtown. There Fair Parks right there, um, Russ, but all the big mega churches. You know what I'm talking about? All the big surrounding ones. We, I talk to the youth pastors. I get them. They bring their kids for a week, mission trip down there. And when they get there, the bus pulls up. Fancy, beautiful buses are written, you know, pulls up in my neighborhood, all drug dealers, everybody sitting on the stoops. All you know, it's, it's, it looks like crap down there. And the kids are all looking in one eye. And all the kids looking out the window, all scared. The white kids, like, we fucked up. This is wrong. We're, we're going to die, right? <laughs> kids scared as hell. A week, and they're sleeping at our community center in sleeping bags on there with their youth pastor there on site, a couple volunteers. By the time they leave a week later, all the kids are on their back. Everybody's hanging on to each other. It was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen because those white kids never saw downtown Dallas before. Mm. Not like that. And they went to all those kids' houses that they had Bible study with because they'd walk them home and they'd get to go in their house. Eventually, by the end of the they'd have meals with them in their house. Mm. And what, at least the stories they told us afterwards, all these kids were telling us how we realized how blessed they we were and how grateful we what they had. They never realized how much they had until the King stayed with us for a week. Isn't that crazy? Wow. I mean, I got crazy stories. Wow. It was some good stuff. I mean, God did some crazy miracles that whole season. Yeah, but Norm was a big part of it. He taught me so much about how to restructure the board, how to set. And we have video of Norm. I don't know where it is anymore, but we had video of Norm, and no one believed it. We'd have a Thanksgiving turkey thing. We're hanging out food. Neighborhood's come together. They're having no hip-hop music, and kids are dancing. Norm brings his grandson. He's never done it. He was a board tournament before I got there with a previous group. He's never even been down there. He started having our board meetings out there in my house because I lived right in the center of all that. And he brought his grandson for a Turkey Handout. He's dancing as the kids are hip hop dancing, like kind of break off dancing. You see Norm, they are there dancing with him. I was like, back then, I think we had a camcorder. We didn't have video on our phones. And we had a picture of him doing it. And all the boards, like, what the hell? They didn't even want to meet down there. Like Norm said, no, we're meeting downtown in Sebastian's house. And it was crazy. He showed me how what looks like to live out your faith. Mm. That man was, he was a legit Christian. He was, I mean, like in a sense of all his money, fame, his power, none of that really. i would never seen that. I just seen this humble guy who served other people, had tons of wisdom. That guy was amazing. Yeah. I don't know where
0: he is to this day. Mm. So why Colorado? Out of anywhere that you could have moved. Yeah. Could have left California, fled California. Well, uh- <laughs>
1: Well, we're doing good in California. We, we had our dream house. We had two yards, big pool, corner lot. We built an incredible community. I mean, not to sound stupid, but just to give you context. The church I was a pastor at one time, 3,000 was our largest, all Asian American, with the fastest growing Asian American church in America. I preached almost, I was one of the, we had rotation preachers. And I preached the most besides the senior pastor and me, I sold the most CDs back then than anybody. Every Sunday, you could buy the CDs afterwards. Always had the highest-selling CDs because I was just non-traditional. When I delivered, man, everybody's either crying or yelling, screaming. I mean, I got crazy on stage. And um, so we knew a lot of people. We had a huge community there. You ask my kids, anywhere we go to a restaurant, people would come up and say hi to us or people would pay for our meals. I mean, to this day, they're 20, 19, 21. They're this, I, mean, I still remember, we can't go in without someone interrupting us right so we had good community we never went to leave california i started doing overland camping a couple years ago and i didn't know this thing called camping and pooping in the woods and you bring your own junk i was like wow this feels like real camping it's not like a hotel you know what i mean it's called overland camping and um i just started loving i started connecting god out there i started having more peace i was less stressed i've already had a heart attack and a stroke a year apart from each other what it was all stress induced what i had a heart attack. Started a new church Started a new coaching business Moved into our new house That's like 15 years ago And so much stress But you're not supposed to show weakness, right? You're not supposed to show Like, I'm happy I'm a Christian Everything's great So I didn't talk about it And all of a sudden I just held it in And, in and had a heart attack I was at the regular checkup Telling I have chest pain Puts my EKG Called 911 Sent me to hospital right away They had a bed waiting for me right there Seriously, 8-10 people And they're stabbing me with stuff one girl, there was such a hurry, she missed my vein, and my arm went like this big. Literally, yeah. the water just went like that. Yeah. Like, oh, shit, switch arms. <laughs> you know, they had to do yeah. that. They literally called Donna and sent an ambulance to her house because they thought I was a They sent an ambulance to go pick her up. How
0: old were you? What year was this?
1: I'm 51 now. 40, early 40s, 40, 43 maybe? Heart attack. Early so was, 40s. I was in the room. I see like six giant monitors. They have me half sedated. They want to keep me awake. They're putting a balloon through my leg mm-hmm. to open it up. And they're like, okay, think of somewhere peaceful and all that. I go, heaven with God. No! He's like, don't think that. I still remember that. They're like, no! No, think of something like the beach or something. I kind of don't like the beach. I've at this conversation, Guy, kind of half sedated, right? But they need to keep me awake. And all of a sudden, I heard the doctor goes, and no, you can hear intensity in their voice. And they give me this, do that. And they put that thing up my leg and that got the probe and you can see the probe on the screen. He's looking for it. And all of a sudden the room gets eerie quiet and the doctor goes, it's gone. They couldn't find where they're going to put the balloon. You know what I mean? He said it was gone. And like, I go, Oh, thank God. And he goes, well, I go, Oh, I've been praying. <laughs> well whatever they're like whatever <laughs> it was crazy as hell donna got there when i was in the room on the table with the balloon in my leg and yeah. she got to see that part yeah and that's when because we were like 10 minutes late. she goes i'm not waiting for the ambulance she drove herself and they got me in there so i did all these exercisings i went to see specialist for a year everything's good i started doing marathons because i was like okay god's giving me a chance i need to keep healthy and all that
0: was the stroke the same time or a stroke of different? a stroke a year later wow
1: i just got to have him lunch yeah got him for my mentor he's from dallas he's a doctor and we we're talking also like, oh shit he goes what felt inside my head it's like blood or something popping my whole side my right side of my face is like hot he goes what touch it can you feel anything oh uh, no it's kind of numb He goes, shit, you're having a stroke. He goes, go to the hospital. I drove to the hospital. I walked in. You drove to the hospital? (laughs) What the hell? Well, I'm talking to him on the phone. He told me, I think you're having a stroke. Go to the hospital. I just started driving straight to the hospital, to the ER. I got in. They said I had the baby stroke. Mm -hmm. And the big one's coming. And so they had me in there for like two days. Thanksgiving's that week. It's like half my church is going to be in my house. dude, I called my other buddy who's a doctor. He's a, um, a geriatric doctor. And no, I go, hey, look, how long can they keep me? He won't sign me out. He won't tell me. He goes, they're waiting for the big one to come, dude. "Ah, Don't worry, we're praying. I don't want to miss the Thanksgiving, our church member and stuff like that, right? (laughs) He goes, okay, here's the legal thing you do. You could check yourself out and he'll come in, stop because he won't get paid or whatever. So then he'll finally check you out. I go, okay, so I finally got the doctor because I'm threatened I'm going to check myself out. So he talked to me. He goes, listen, we're just waiting for the big one to come. I go, do you know where it's at? You know what I mean? He's like, how do you know it's coming? You know, I got a lot of people praying. He goes, please stop saying that. I kept on telling him, I got my whole church praying. I got everybody praying? He goes, I mean, they're kind of getting pissed at me because I kept on saying, you know, I gotta go. You know, I'm waiting there three days. I haven't had a big one yet. You know, let's, let's go. You know what I mean? If you can have the small one, don't you think the big one would come right after? Right. And he, I go, I'm not a doctor, but <laughs> and like, so I checked myself out. He, he, Drives up and then he's all panicking, regular clothes, you know, not doctor clothes, so he could sign me out so he could get paid. And I did exactly what my other doctor friend told me. I went home and just been following up after that. But it was crazy because my, half my face was like this. Mm. It, was, it was crazy. Isn't that crazy? It was early 40s. That time was mid 40s because by then it was early 40s. I think I was 43 when I had my heart attack. Dude. Isn't that crazy? It was crazy. I'm telling I had some crazy crap happen in my life. God is good. And just like a quote I just heard the other day, it's an author, I've got his name. Oh, I got it right here. I would love for this to be on the podcast because this would be a great way to see how I live my life and how I'm finishing my life. You guys might have heard him. Jack Linden, the author, Jack Linden, the proper function of a man is to live, not to exist. I shall not waste my days in trying to prolong them. I shall use my time. Mm. And that's to me living life and life to the fullest. And so I think that's why for me, there was always this urgency. You know, I started reading like crazy. All my books are still upstairs unpacked, but my other garage, no exaggeration, two-car garage, one whole wall of the two-car garage, all bookcase. You get three-fourths all theological books. The other ones, leadership books and stuff. It was, I just made up for the 20 some years I just reading ferociously every night. Didn't watch TV or anything. Just read, 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 read. And I just couldn't get over that. Transforming, renewing your mind. Replacing my old junk with God's truth transformed everything for me. Only reason, and I'd love to share this one day, another time. I've been married 26 years. Only reason we're still married 26 years is because we're doing it God's way. I'm telling you, we almost divorced multiple times. And every time now in hindsight, it's always my insecurity, fear of abandonment and rejection that I was just walk out on her. And I made everything personal, you know? But it was for, I tell you, if you want to say what's the biggest thing I ever did as a Christian, it's not all the church plants I've done. It's not all the personal counseling. It's not having the first recovery ministry in an Asian American church that I oversaw. It was not taking a mission team from 30 people one year. My next year being, I got to the church, next year we did 300 people on mission trips. And like, how the fuck did you get 30 people? No, before you came, only 30 people on mission. Next year, 300 people went. Mm. It was crazy. None of that means anything. I tell you more and more, quote quote, accolades as a Christian. But as a Christian, the greatest success I've had is being married 26 years. My three boys, all following God their way, and my daughter. And they just told us the reason we have our relationship with God is because you never told us how. And you always let us express ourselves Because we have friends or kids are going sideways and stuff. Like, you wants to get off college and stuff. And they go, not us. You've never censored us. You never told us we can't watch this TV, that. And you've always were there just for us. And when we were ready, you were ready for the conversation. But you never forced it. We just had this conversation a couple of days ago when they are here. And I was like, I looked at my wife. It's like, dude, that was the biggest paycheck we got in a long time.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: he said, you never said, let's just be us. You know, and I was like, holy crap. So I, I think for me as a Christian, at the end of the day, it's just the fact that um, married 26 years, my three boys all follow Jesus and my daughter, obviously, but she's 10. Even though my vision, Steve, at the end of the day, you guys will know this. And my community right now who in my business coaching program, Christian or non, they know this. When I die, I just want 100 people there. The 100 that said I discipled them, mentored them, invested in whatever, so that. They know that they choose their own faith. And then behind those hundred, they each bring ten people of their own or a hundred people of their own. They'll say, see that bastard right there? He's the one that set me free. He's the one that taught me how to live a life right fools He's the one. Because I was taught to make disciples. You know what I mean? Hey, so that's, one. Before we get it, to that's the that's rapid fire segment,
2: I wanted to talk about said, a way that you as a listener can support the show Sebastian and Wim. the growth Let's get of the moments by becoming a monthly supporter at Patreon.com slash Holy Smokes. Patreon is a support platform and for as little as $5 a month, you can get bonuses like ad-free versions of these podcast episodes, Holy Smoke swag like t-shirts and more. That's Patreon.com slash Holy Smokes. We're looking to get 40 patreon supporters at an average of ten dollars a month and once we hit that we'll be able to pay for all the costs for hosting editing writing posting i won't be paying for that out of my pocket or through the volunteering of my own personal time and as we grow that number to 100 and 150 200 patrons we'll be able to do two shows a week hire a part-time assistant web developer record on location and around the world and more I want to visit groups and get those stories from so many of you listeners that I hear from. I want to go to Seattle and I want to go to Dallas and I want to go to Charleston, South Carolina, and I want to go to Kentucky and Chicago and Phoenix, Atlanta, D.C., Charlotte, back to Southern California and more. We want to help grow your groups and plant new ones for those of you in areas without active groups. So can you help us out? Become a regular supporter at patreon.com slash holysmokes. There's a link in the show notes. That's patreon.com slash holysmokes. Or if you want to make a one-time tax deductible gift, go to paypal.me slash holysmokes club. That's paypal.me slash holysmokes club. And both of those links are in the show notes. Thanks. Rapid fire! fire. So my first question, how's that stick treating
0: you? I gave you a safari cigar.
2: It's
1: really good. I just been talking so much. I've been able to to draw on it,
0: <laughs> it has. You're about halfway cool. down, so
1: it is a clean pull. I love the pull on this; it's yes. just so
0: easy. It's, it's a yeah. nice, well constructed stick mm. and super tasty. I love mm. the flavor. Yes, great Maduro right here. When did you first try cigars?
1: Hey, here's the funny part: after getting out of the mafia and stuff, after I quit drinking and smoking, I was Mister Clean on the extreme side. As dumb, yeah. I'd even cuss. I stopped cussing, drinking, smoking. I'm a great Christian, great pastor, great leader. Then I took over a church in Dallas where I became part of church, in Dallas, as fast as going to an Asian American church called New Song. And those guys were smoking. I was like, well, cigars. as a missionary, I learned that you know, not all things are permissible, not all things are profitable. And if I'm gonna connect with them, show them God where they're at, I'm just gonna meet people where they're at. And I don't demonize anything and all that. And they're all smoking cigars. And there are some Christians, some baby Christians, but most of them were checking it out. Because in our Asian American culture, it's not really a thing, you know, being Christian. And so they bring out cigars. All right, let's do it. I used to smoke cigarettes. I could smoke cigars and go, no, 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 don't do that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so I
1: learned the hard way. I will be, I learned the hard way and, whoo, kicked my butt. But that's what I learned through the church, actually. There were a couple of new, we'd call them seekers or new Christians who smoke cigars. Very wealthy businessmen. And um, they taught me, and after that it was is on game on.
0: <laughs> Do you ever try pipe?
1: Mm-hmm. I got a couple up there. I still smoke pipe. Actually, I enjoy pipe for contemplative time. Contemplative, like if I'm doing a deep Bible study, I love my pipe. Maybe it's this nostalgia of it and all that. And I learned that when I was in Bible college, the pipe. But cigars, I enjoy with people. It's a neutralizer for community for conversations. And I love cigars. That pipe, usually, what I do by myself. Favorite cigar, the one I gave you so far right now is called New World. I just found it, and New
0: what is World. it? New World. Yeah, yeah. I liked it.
1: It's very meatyish, clean, easy pull. It's like this for me. It's like this safari having, but this is a Maduro, and the New World's just a little bit more cleaner and lighter. Where Maduro has a little more flavor and heavier body, which I enjoy too. But both of them have such a great, easy pull. Nice, even burn. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That new world you gave me was very nice. Most expensive cigar you've ever smoked.
1: I didn't know at the time. I just thought it was freaking, is it called or Opel? It's so fancy. I thought it was OP something. Open Mm -hmm. I don't know. But we're in New York and Mm -hmm. the guys there are hedge fund guys. And they cut it up and say, all right, let's go. And guess what I drank with it? Pappy Manwinkle. Winkle. Ooh. Woo, mother, daughter. That's <laughs> a Pappy of that. It was like, it was a good. I enjoy good company, good cigars. I'm just now learning through the Holy Smoke community to actually know their name and where they come from.
0: <laughs> Best dollar for dollar cigar you buy?
1: Dollar for dollar that I could buy? I'm new at this. So I think the one I really enjoy is my Arturo Fuentes up there and my Olivia G's. I don't know if that's the best, but for me right yeah. now in this journey of mine, those are pretty good. I mean, I was paying 15, 20 bucks a stick thinking, you know, that's average. Yeah. Then I figured you get good shit for 10 bucks at the same price. And now I'm finding you can even get even cheaper, like five or $7 cigar at some of the auction stuff and stuff like that, you guys. So again, on my journey, I'm learning, I go lower and get such good quality, right? So yeah. for right now, the best one I've found so far is the Olivia G's in my Arturo Fuentes. I don't know what series that one is, but they're, they're about 10 bucks.
0: Where's your go to place to get your smokes?
1: Now? Because you guys taught me it's called Cigar C- something. You order. Cigar
0: bid? No. Cigars International?
1: Boogers. Come on. They're from Kansas, maybe? They're always sending me freaking things. It should be in my email right here. Something cigar. But you guys showed me, and it's good. They order, and they're fairly priced. Maybe this cigar. is this a cigar bid. Some biscuit. I get here. Cigar King. Cigar King. Yeah, Cigar King. Hmm. Yep, Cigar King. These guys, Cigar dot com. Yeah, there's so many places. Yeah, I haven't done bid yet.
0: At Cigar Bid, I can get those um, comfortably numb by Espinosa. I can mm-hmm. get them for about three bucks, even under a stick. What the Christmas? It's a great stick for three for three bucks. It's I remember a- you gave me one. It was like amazing. What's your favorite liquid pairing with your smoke?
1: Anything scotch. I am a scotch guy. I love scotch. You guys here smoke so much bourbon, it makes me sick. (laughs) But there's an Oban right there. That's my go-to, is my standard. Yeah. But there's another one here that, oh my gosh, where is it? Uh, We drank it all already, but it is my other one go-to. It has a little peat to it. Anything with peat, scotch, I love
0: it. Oh,
1: there it is right in front of me. What am I talking about? Right here. This one. Oh, my stars. You got to try this one.
0: Scarables? Dude, that's why I, I let you say.
1: Scarables? From Isles. But it has a little peat to it. It's not too peaty like LaFleur um, yeah. or anything. Yeah. But it has a balance between the scotch and some...
0: Scarabas. A peat. Scarabas? it is
1: a very decent price model.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I have to try a little before we leave.
1: Oh, you have to. Isles single malt scotch whiskey.
0: You pulled out this... Grainstone, you told me oh, to try. I love it. So I just poured a little bit. I'll have a little bit. Have a little bit.
1: Yeah, I said Grange stone is uh. So last six months I was in Dallas before I moved out here. I made an arrangement to become best friends with people at Total Wine because I don't know anywhere else to go get anything there. And so I got to know them very personally. And every time I go, I have to get different bottles. I didn't want the same stuff. Yeah. Because I literally tried no exaggeration probably seventy five bottles they had. Yeah. And this one for price point, taste, and it's it's a scotch and a bourbon cast. It's um, amazing. Single, Highland Single Malt Scotch Whiskey. Uh, it's a double maturation. It's in bourbon cast. It's crazy. And it's really good with cigars. Especially if you bourbon people like that one because it has the scotch and like, the hint of the bourbon
0: to mm. it. Yeah. What do you think? I like it. Most interesting person you've ever met through cigars.
1: Through cigars? Huh. That's an interesting question. So I don't know if this, he's the most interesting. I think the most interesting conversation I've had is he was a Forex trader and he was teaching me about Forex trading and how he does, I, I thought he was just on a different planet. You know, I don't think I would ever have that conversation normally. And the first thing comes come to my mind, he's just, oh yeah, Forex trader. Now I've had a lot of great conversation with people and my favorite are the vulnerable conversations. Mm-hmm. Like people who've had an affair on their spouse. People who've had business bankruptcy. People who are just insecure about their sexuality. That's what I'm telling with cigars, I've had such great conversations that I think cigar allows it and puts out all religious pretense and everything. You know what I mean? It just allows us to be human. So I had tons of those. And I love those the most. Mm-hmm. But the interesting one is like, I didn't even know what the Forex changing things on dollars and pennies and seconds. I was like, what the Christmas? That was crazy. But the ones I love the most are the most vulnerable conversations about our humanity, our insecurities. Those are my favorite.
0: Best place you've ever had a cigar?
1: Ooh, that's a good question. I think for the nostalgia part of it was in New York at this uh, private... Well, there's two places. New York is a private club and got to see some, you know, very interesting people there, notoriety people, wealthy people that movie stars that, you know, hobnob there. And I just couldn't believe the environment and atmosphere. And I couldn't believe, you know, who showed up and who was there. And I was like, how the hell did I get in here? (laughs) And then it happened same thing in L.A. And I know how it got both places because I was just at that time as a pastor serving people and you know, just meeting them where they're at. And this guy took me to the LA one, same thing. And we saw some movie stars there and they'd come up to our table because my friend knew them and they'd introduce himself and stuff and just other people you, you wouldn't even know because they're just so wealthy, but their money comes from different places. But it's just that, that culture. And plus both those places, I probably had the best freaking food there. I mean, holy smokes, the steaks, yeah. Shazam.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Marvel or DC?
1: Uh, probably Marvel. I'm not much into those, but okay. my boys have been teaching me a lot about Marvel. And so I love the character. And the new, I can't even know, Shang-Chi. Shang-Chi. That one came out and...
0: It was good. It was I amazing. Liked it. My boys thought it was very meaty. They thought it was good, but they didn't think it was on Marvel par. And I, I think that one might be one of my favorites. Because I really came out of that film with a very deep appreciation for Chinese culture.
1: And that's what my boys said, too. For them being Asian American, that really helped them not be ashamed of our culture, but really see it it was treated in a very beautiful
0: light. Like, oh yeah, it was really good. Yep, so Marvel. Star Wars or Star Trek?
1: That's a very tough one. I mean, you're really making me choose something really hard here, but I would have to go with Star Trek, because I grew up with um, Captain Kirk as my John Wayne, as my Duke, he was the man of man, right? And I think also it was a churning of a generation where everything started becoming teams. Where the Duke was by himself. Yeah. He was a man by himself. Where Star Trek, Kirk was only Kirk because of his team. He wasn't successful because of himself. So, yeah, Star Trek.
0: Dogs, cats, neither or both?
1: So, I'm allergic to cats. So I never had a fond of them. I enjoy them because I think they're a little uh, mischievous, but I love dogs because we've had a couple in our life growing up, and the one sitting your foot right now is about 100 pounds, half lab, half Rottweiler, and just so loyal, I mean, he's he's so a, amazing.
0: He's, he's a sweet, mellow dog, He's Shadow. a
1: sweet guy, Shadow, <clears throat> yes he is. So definitely dogs.
0: Nickname growing up?
1: So I'm gonna tell you how I got my name Sebastian. That's not my name. Yeah. And my son's just learned this this weekend over Thanksgiving. So my Vietnamese name is Sang, S-A-N-G. So you think S-A-N-G, people always pronounce that. But um, one of the times I got out of jail, I got out and I said, you know, I'm going to do a new start. And I love music. I'm going to be a, and I'm a natural businessman. So I was going to Art Institute of Dallas for business, music business. Mm-hmm. And we're getting, sitting around getting high one day between classes. And as we're getting high, they're like, no, we're tired of them butchering your name and all that. Let's give you an American name, right? Remember, we're smoking pot, guys. Okay? We're smoking pot saying, let's give you an American name. The first name they gave me was Jericho. You have to understand, though, I had long Black hair in a ponytail, because Steven Seagal was my influence.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so just
1: imagine me, long ponytail like that, and they called me Jericho. Yeah, and we're smoking pot. We're like, all right, well, what's another name we probably give? or Sebastian,
0: and I ended up with Sebastian. What's one unusual fact that few people know about you?
1: One unusual fact?
0: Yeah.
1: Oh, what's a fact about? I'm pretty open book, so that takes me a minute. People, most people know I'm XCom. Most people. Oh, here's what people don't know. Recently, my daughter will tell you this, recently, like in the last several years. So I never cried until I became a Christian, literally. Mm-hmm. I didn't cry because men aren't supposed to cry. That shows weakness, weakness, you die, blah, blah, blah. I cry now every time I watch American Gats Talent or British Gats Talent with my daughter. Mm. I didn't understand why I first started doing it. I traveled. I go speak somewhere, I travel, come back, I'm at the airport, I just put on my phone just a debrief from my brain. Yeah, I'm, watching, I'm crying at the airport. I'm like, why am I always crying every time I watch america Got Talent? Always, I'm crying like crazy. It's crazy. So now I cry, drop of a dot. Uh, Hallmark commercials, <laughs> I used to cry. I cry
0: all the time. Favorite one to three books not titled The Holy Bible?
1: One to three books? So the book on my list... Um, I give most people in my training is uh, there's one called Four Agreements. It's called Four Agreements. Very simple, very great principles there. I think they're very biblical, they're just not in a biblical context. Another great book I give to all the guys on our training, sorry ladies, but it's a three hundred and sixty-five day devotional by Richard Rohr on transformation of men. It's just on men. Mm-hmm. And I know, watch none of these books are like fictional, all these are like stay books and I don't know which of the third one, there's... I don't know which of the third one I'd be, there's so many, but those two, the first two just popped my mind, that are big for me.
0: you could be any animal, what would you be?
1: Hmm, any animal. I don't know, dogs have a pretty good life, man. (laughs) But on my spiritual journey getting my animal name, through a retreat, men's retreat one time, hosted by Richard and them, my spirit animal came to me, was a turkey. (laughs) <laughs> I was so pissed I was meditating all day Waiting for an eagle to fly by Freaking bear come get me Something And we're out in this wilderness in California And you're supposed to be sitting there all day waiting. And a turkey comes up on me I was like son of a bitch I was so angry I was so mad I wanted something more sexy than a turkey But I'm accepting that I'm a turkey
0: Wild turkeys are pretty smart
1: I learned not only are they smart They're freaking tough as hell. Yeah. I was like,
2: wow.
0: Ben Franklin wanted the national bird animal to be a turkey. Damn yeah. Yeah, Ben Franklin did. So turkey. Are you an early riser, night owl, average?
1: I'm an early riser now because my work, I have coaching calls at 5.30 a.m., which is 6.30 central time. And I enjoy waking up early because there's so much to do now. Where before, I'd sleep in all day. There was, I almost hate days, you know. But now I, there's so much to do. I love it. I'm an early riser.
0: If you could live anywhere, where would you live?
1: Sure. Denver, Colorado. I, I moved here because I wanted to uh, connect God in the wilderness. And I see him more. And I hear him more. And I, I'm more calm. I'm not stressed. So that's why I moved to Colorado. I mean, so I'm living exactly where I want to live.
0: <laughs> you like hiking? I love hiking. You ever done a 14er?
1: No, but because of you, I have a list of all the 14ers here, and I'm gonna start off one at a time. The small ones. I'll take obviously. you out
0: next summer. Oh, definitely. I'll I'd, take you out next summer. It's looking forward to it. It's yeah. awesome. What's your greatest strength and what's your greatest weakness?
1: I think my greatest strength is after I became Christian, I realized there's more things to consider. So I teach this thing called living in the 95 or 95%, and that's just Consider another possibility. Consider another possibility. You don't know everything. What we do know is so limited. So that's my greatest gift. Like, I don't put anything in a box. God's bigger than anything I can imagine him to be. People are bigger than anything I imagine. So that's my greatest strength. My greatest weakness is I want to live in the 95 all the time. Meaning I always want to live another possibility. You know, sometimes you got to be where you're at and just be there fully present. You know,
0: and that's that's hard for me. Yeah. Yeah. Who's been the greatest influence in your life?
1: Well, first person would be my mom. She taught me what hard work looks like. When she died, she could barely speak English. She was in America for maybe 20 years. She can't read or write English, and she left us with four houses as a single mom working three jobs in Dallas, Texas. Wow. Paid off. Wow. I mean, like, what the Christmas? How did she do that? We don't understand to this day, but she left a legacy for her children because that's what she brought America for. So she's the biggest influence, yeah.
0: Who's the first person you think of when you hear the word
2: successful?
0: My wife.
1: (laughs) I know, it's crazy. I've been meditating on this the other day, and if I can describe my wife, she's successful because she doesn't need anything. She's so grateful for everything she has. She's in the moment, she's present, Mm. and she doesn't chase anything. So for me, success is being not only grateful for what you have, but being in that moment, present, and being able to capture it all, because we're always chasing something out there, but it's already in front of us right here. So I would say definitely my wife.
0: Mm. What do you do for self-care, to rest, to recharge?
1: So I'm a bubble bath guy. I would never tell people that before. That's one of those facts. I love hot bubble bath. I put Epsom salt, bath bomb, my laptop and I can later, sometimes I don't even watch my iPad, the movie, whatever. I have it all set up and I just meditate. But just that, give myself permission, which is really hard for me, give myself permission just to be there for an hour, not having to do anything. And knowing that God's in control, I don't have to do everything. That to me is, ah, that's heavenly.
0: What's the best type of cheese?
1: Mmm, easy question. We are a cheese family, we love it. We love wine and cheese. Uh, shootery board (laughs) I just saw a funny TikTok this Filipino woman goes she's showing a picture of her daughter she goes I want this Christmas the chittery the chit I want the chit her daughter makes this face what are you talking about she couldn't say shootery board board, right so anyways sharp cheese extra sharp we just got some from Costco I don't know where the hell they got it from best cheese ever had in my life
0: amazing alright final three questions what does Holy Smokes mean to you? And how has it contributed to your spiritual journey?
1: Uh, holy Smokes, was does it mean to me? I would put it as a gathering of unconventional love. A gathering of unconventional people and love. What it's done for me is gave me, first of all, broke my, from my pain and hurt from the church of stereotypical Christian, what I box all Christians in. So broke that and said God is bigger than that. Christianity spectrum is bigger than that. So that was beautiful. I mean, changed my life, literally. I don't think Don and I can have the joy we're having here in Colorado without having the community we have. That's what it means to me. What it has done for me is give me a spectrum of perspectives. We call it different stripes on the beach ball that made my life more rich. We have older people in our group, younger people, everybody in between, married, divorced, banked, I mean I think, this, to me, it's the body of Christ, the, just a diverse spectrum, and they help me see different perspectives. Keeps me humble, keeps me growing hungry. I, I mean, I can't say enough about the group, serious. It's really changed my life. Yes, you ask Donna, my mm-hmm. wife would say, wow, you've become a nicer person.
0: <laughs> if you were to have a holy smoke with any three people throughout history, living or deceased, who would they be? Can't name Jesus.
1: So this is one reason I call this. My whole life about is about developing leaders because that was what was missing for me growing up. And I call this uh, room my leadership lab because the lab itself is an experiment. It's not finished. It's undone. But it's a lab about leadership. And so the three people, or the people I'm going to hang up on this wall are it can be black and white. First would be Dietrich Bonhoeffer.
0: Ooh.
1: Yeah. You know, he had the world at his hand He grew up with privilege, but he saw past this world. He saw a greater eternal world, and he was willing to give his life up for it. He stood up for people at that time He didn't have a voice. Obviously when he came to America with the blacks and what was happening with the water fountains. In Harlem. Yeah, and so for me, for growing up as a minority, seeing someone with so much privilege and not owning his privilege, but seeing there's a greater life to live, he just ministered to me. He was just freaking a badass. So definitely him. The second one would be Martin Luther King. He was not even close to being perfect. He just studied and read him as a pastor, stuttered. wasn't that great. But he took up the mantle when he was literally pushed into it by the other leaders. He stepped up and owned his gift that God gave him and made a movement that changed history. So definitely them two. And then, um, you know, I don't know. The other one, it sounds too... Intense, serious, but the other two, so the one I would love to have meal with, I don't know if he's dead. Maybe because I don't keep up pop culture anymore and all that, but I'd really love to sit with a comedian because they have so much pain, but they see world a different perspective. And there's a couple comedians out there, like he's still alive, Bill Burr, Ooh. but that guy's always angry. He reminds me of me. He's just constantly angry, but he sees things in a different perspective. I love Jim Gaffigan. He's alive, he's ridiculous. I mean, he just, first concert i ever seen with him, I was almost peeing my pants, I couldn't get up to go to the restroom, I didn't wanna miss anything. So I was literally gonna pee right there, I don't care, I was gonna pee right there. But someone else that's dead, I know this sounds, I didn't wanna get too serious because it sounds all the other two, but the other person would be like, because of my mom, Harriet Tubman. Just because I feel like my mom is like Harriet Tubman. Gave her life to free other people and give them something greater than they had and that, that's how i feel about my mom and i just want to know like women to me are just so fascinating they have so much more difficulty than men they get no credit they're so much more powerful richard Rohr said one time when i heard him say it straight from his mouth i'm going to my pants he goes they're the most powerful human being they bleed every month and they don't cry where men bleed once and we cry. <laughs> but if you think about a woman's journey, yeah, Harriet Tubman. Yeah.
0: You've seen her, that movie about her?
1: No, there's a movie?
0: Yeah, it's really good. What's it called? Tubman.
1: Get the Chris. I it's told good. you I've been watching just a, pop
0: culture for a while. two, three years old. It's really good. Mm. It's a really good film. I need to watch it. Thank right. you for that. Last question. Okay. If we're to meet one year from today and I got a bottle of really good scotch... What are we celebrating?
1: So starting the month of November through December, I go into a very contemplative, meditative stage of reviewing what I did last year, what worked, what didn't work. Uh, what was my vision? Uh, what was the barriers? What got in the way? Then what do I want next year? So you're asking me a question that I'm really deep sitting in and at the foundation is making disciples. I'm going to measure myself. I don't get the number yet. I'm praying about five hundred thousand, ten thousand. 10,000, I don't know. But I'm going to have an automated coaching system, a leadership system that people who can't afford coaches can still afford $10 a month, $20 a month, whatever, where they get all the greatest teachings I've ever taught anybody who's paying me $10,000 a month. And the reason being is because that's what was missing for me growing up. I'm gamifying it. So, Steve, you can afford paying me $5,000 a month, but that kid down the street who has a single mom who's working three jobs like I grew up with can't. But he gets on this leadership program, he gets exact same teaching, but he pays $10 a month because he has to have something at stake for his growth. Mm-hmm. But you, gamifying it, he has to do the work daily, he gets to make points per day and all that, but if he gets, say, 500 points, he come to this conference for free, he doesn't pay for it, he gets 200 points, to get a one-on-one coaching session, but you, paying $5,000 a month, you get 5,000 points a month. And you realize, you know what, I'm watching this guy, I'm watching his profile, I'm gonna give him a thousand points so he can have a one-on-one coaching session. Sebastian, he go this training, this and that. And you can make a disciple without having to invest in him because the program's set for him already. Mm -hmm. So you and i be celebrating this, that we got a whole bunch of guys who's never taught to make disciple, but they're in a great stage in their life financially. They have a heart to invest in the next generation, but they don't know how. And they don't have the time. They're running a business, they have their own family to sit here and mentor somebody one-on-one or something. But know what they can do? Say, hey, I see where you're going based on your profile. I see the classes you need to take based on what I've already taken and the, what's available. Here are some points I'll give you. Invest in your leadership for you to do it. And those kids grow up and get to it. It's not about free and handout because they can still earn their own points every day, making comments, posting videos to get points for all that. Mm-hmm. So they can do the work and get their own points work way up there. You're accelerating their leadership. So a year from now, no way would open a bottle of nice scotch, when our best cigars you and I enjoy, it doesn't mean high dollar value, it means high enjoyment value cigar. And we'd be celebrating that, and I'm still praying for the number of 500, 700 students went through, 500, 1,000 business owners went through, because it's a both and. I have to have the business owners go through to scholarship or to accelerate the, the leadership process for the students, I would call them students, those who couldn't afford what business owners could. So I'm working on that software right now with some programmers and uh, designers. And my target is by end of first quarter of next year, it'll be done. And of course, be filling forward the whole way and we'll be reprogramming, redesigning. But my life is about making samples and giving it away.
0: Yep, that's what we'll be celebrating. Sebastian Wynn, I love you, my man. Thanks for being on the Holy Smokes podcast. Thank you, Steve.
1: I love you too, brother. I'm so glad you're in are your healthy. Ha ha! Yes! That's what I'm really excited about. You're feeling good and you're healthy.